Adventures on a Hill with Henry, Danny, Kagan, and Giovanni. Welcome, everyone, to Fortresses on a Hill, a podcast about U.S. foreign policy, anti-imperialism, skepticism, and the American way of war. I'm Henry. Thank you for uh, taking the time to join us. With me is my co-host, Giovanni. Giovanni, hey, how you doing, man? Hey, what's going on? Happy New Year's, everyone. Doing well. And uh, we are joined by uh, Jake Tucker, who is uh, a veteran of the U.S. Army from 2001 to 2009. Uh, Jake's experience in the Army led him to the anti-war and anti-imperialist movement. While the military is service only for the rich, Jake has since served the San Antonio, Texas community in labor and housing organizing alongside the struggle against all oppression. He is an organizer with the Party for Socialism and Liberation. Jake? Welcome to Fortress on Hill. Hey, thanks for having me, y'all, and Happy New Year's. Same to you. Same to you. So um, we had we had planned to do an end-of-year episode for the podcast, and we got a little uh, sidetracked schedule-wise, but we still wanted to take the time to talk about the stories and the subjects going into the new year that we feel people need to keep an eye on, um, maybe some updates from a time that we haven't talked about something for quite a while, um, but we wanted to take time to to kind of cap the year and and um, go through some of these things, uh, things that people really need to be watching out for. Um, so, Giovanni, um, was there anything you wanted to add, add about that? Yeah, lots of things happening. Lots of things happened in 2002 was an interesting year. Um, a lot of things are, you know, unraveling and a lot of things are uh, shifting, um, you know, and, you know, there's things that we need to keep our eye on for, uh, for 2023. I mean, uh, yeah. So, so we're here to discuss some of the things that are, you know, some of the things that made the news and some things that didn't make the news, uh, but are also important and we should keep an eye on and we should, uh, uh involve and engage, engage them. Hell yeah. So, um, I think we're going to, uh, get started with Jake. Jake, you want to, um, take us into, uh, your first, uh, first topic. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, we saw a resurgence of, uh, domestic, uh, protests, you know, we, we'd seen it a lot in 2020 died down in 2021, but this, this time it came kind of on the attack on, on women's rights coming from the Supreme court. Um, so it started um, with kind of at least something that was unprecedented that I'd ever really seen, but a leaked draft opinion, um, which signaled that uh, Roe v. Wade was going to be over, overturn, overturned in the Dobbs decision. And um, I believe that that draft decision came down, came in, like was leaked in April or something like that, and immediately sent thousands of people into the streets. Um and then indeed the uh the opinion of the supreme court was confirmed when they they released their decision the dobbs decision um which did indeed overturn roe v wade um and so depending on where you're at i know here in san antonio um you know we were we were out in the streets um in between the draft decision and the final decision coming down um and then afterwards uh basically building um you know, we live in Texas, so t Texas is one of the states that has um, 
trigger laws. And the trigger laws are, I, I think actually Rachel was on um, talking about it a, a month or so back. But, um, but the trigger laws, uh, basically there were three on the books, um, just ready to be enacted once, uh, once uh, the Dobbs decision um, was, or basically once Roe v. Wade was overturned. And so that includes one that, that they call pre-law statute, one that uh, originates from before, uh, before the Civil War, actually. Um, another, and then another couple passed much more recently, um, one being uh, civil, like basically giving uh, what we, I mean, kind of call it is basically a, a, a bounty uh, law because it gives people the ability to sue um, for up to $10,000 for anyone, um, aiding and abetting abortions. And then, um, and then another one, which I think was passed just, uh, last year, something, I'm not sure. Um, but in the last couple of years, um, which basically, uh, can meet out fines of a hundred thousand dollars and, um, I think up to, to $10,000, uh, in or ten, 10 years in prison, um, for, for again, aiding and abetting abortion. So um, the laws currently on the books are not ostensibly targeted to uh, jailing or fining women who uh, seek or get abortions, but more for those that um, uh, perform, aid, abet, and so on. And so, uh, you know, this is a... a, a, a this is basically a, a, a broader, like part of a broader scheme, broader picture of the right wing, as we've seen um, as they've been getting their Federalist Society judges um, put into put into place through um, lower courts, and then now finally um, getting a uh, an extreme right wing uh, majority on the Supreme Court. Um, this is kind of the culmination of a decades long attack on our de democratic freedoms, and and frankly the uh, the decision with regard to um roe v wade um is kind of just the tip of the spear um we i think it was just a couple weeks ago that um more v harper heard its oral arguments and so i i'll highlight that one real quick before tossing back to y'all um but more v harper what it does it's kind of um initially about um gerrymandering laws and whether you know whether state legislatures have the right to to gerrymander which basically can 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 kind of seal their uh control over the the state governments it also um really what the question is is this uh kind of obscure um legal position or legal idea called independent uh state legislature theory which puts the primacy of our so-called democracy um, onto the states. So it, you know, I think kind of in layman's terms, we can kind of think of it as that, that sort of um, revanchism of states' rights arguments, right? So, um, you know, states' rights has always been anti-democratic, but even more so uh, uh, reactionary um, in its position with regard to whether it be slavery, civil rights, whatever. So it's been racist in its nature as well. Basically the idea that, um, react like, like civil, civil rights, civil liberties, um, democratic protections and so on, um, should be up to the States and rather, uh, rather than being given to everybody. And so 
um, this this independent state legislature theory, um, if if it's upheld by the Supreme Court, this um, kind of what used to be a fringe idea, if it's upheld by the uh, Supreme Court, then obviously the gerrymandering can move move forward, uh, which you know the right wing right wing would would enjoy. But even even more than that, um, it means that they can uh, the legislatures would be able to select their own electors for for president and so on. And so it gives a, a mechanism uh, for elections to go against popular vote, popular will, even in our st states. We already know that the Electoral College is a firmly undemocratic um, means of, of deciding our presidential elections, but this can basically uh, enable enable a state legislature to to um, have electors that go against the will of the popular vote in that state as well. Um, and we know that I think it's like roughly 30 states um, are controlled by Republican majorities in their legislatures. So um, this is this is essentially um, the arguments of, of the right wing have not had them, um, popular support over over years and years. I mean, just on the abortion issue in Texas. Right. Um, 60% of people um, support uh, abortion rights in all or most cases. Only 11% um, say that there should be no abortions in any case. So that means the law that we have is basically supported by 11% of the population. And that's here in Texas, right? So we're, we're given to think that these are firmly like controversial uh, issues or positions or whatever. But frankly, the people have decided this and we fought for it and won it in the streets before. And, um, you know, what we've been saying in San Antonio is we're going to fight and win them again. Um, and, 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 you know, we ain't going to stop at abortion rights. We're going to uh, win, win the security of the, the democratic rights of the people for everybody. Yeah, I was going to comment that uh, um, it's funny, though, you know, what you ended with, because the narratives of the way things are packaged to us, right? Mainstream culture and mainstream rhetoric. Um, about we have, we have to defend our democracy, et cetera, et cetera, right? But this is nothing new. There's nothing new. And it's always been a small amount of people deciding for everyone else, right? But the way they package, the way they package things, they package things like this is part of the democratic process. Well, I could be part of the democratic process if it's only 11% of the population calling for it, you know? Um, so yeah, so it gets, it gets a lot to think about, particularly when we're pointing fingers at others you know, and, and we're talking about, you know, they're not a democracy, but, you know, they, you know, we are what you aspire to be. You know, we should be everyone's inspiration. But, but look at the, the, look at the, um, the polarization, look at the, the inaction that happens, you know, uh, you know, people in the streets, people calling for things. I mean, I can just think about the, uh, the student debt. I mean, young people are, are, uh, are captured in this debt, you know, this debt, uh, what to call that debt trap and, you know, and, and in higher education, it's like in the trillions of dollars. Right. Uh, and the, the photos he campaigned and, and, um, releasing or, you know, uh, cutting this debt or, you know, uh, First, it was, first one number was given, and then the number kept just reducing of the how much how much debt is going to be uh, cut off from the students. You know, I mean, these students are starting out life. You know, um, 
with about eight thousand to hundred thousand dollars of of debt already, right? And and one of the first jobs is pay them by thirty five thousand a year. You know, now apparently it's going to the Supreme Court because uh, a a minority of the population, right? You know, well off minority of the population that are linked to other financial uh, institutions and whatnot doesn't think it's a good idea to uh, to alleviate that debt to the to the young people of this country, you know, and something that touches me because I have kids in college, you know, um, but, but yes, you know, it's what you say there about, you know, it's only something that's only supported by, I think we were talking about that before, things just getting supported just by a small, minute portion of the population, but the way the rhetoric, the way it's being presented or packaged to us is it's something controversial. Like, you know, you know, everyone's just, you know, the debate is, there's debate going back and forth, this and that, but it's, it's actually not. Do you have any thoughts on that, Henry? Uh, so much of our, our culture is, is, is designed to be predatory by nature, especially in the, in the financial aspect. And we're all people that have lived through that time where we, you know, being in the military, that so much of everything around you is commodified, whether it's you and your service or the service of, uh, not the service, but you know, the, the actions, the, the things that other people end up doing. And in terms of that predatory nature, we have to decide who, you know, which side we're going to end up being on. Is it the side of big money? Is it the side of people who believe this, you know, this independent theory about legislature that they are able to control the opinions, not let people use their democratically earned rights to be able to express their opinions for the silent majority saying that 60% of people in Texas believe that this should be, you know, it's not really a question. Everybody should, you know, they're, they're, they're not saying it's right or wrong. They're not saying that they want to rush out and have a bunch of them, but that they understand that it's a right and that some people need it. And that this is supposed to be the country that rep that respects those kind of, those kind of hard points. And. I, I think that, I think that most people do. I just think that, you know, again, it's, it's, you know, how does, how does that 60% of people in Texas, a, a state that is very hostile to abortion and women's rights more in general to be a, you know, to be a better place to say those opinions that, like you said, Giovanni, if they falls outside of the package pre-planned narrative of what, uh, of what is supposed to be happening. That's one of the biggest things we have to do as anti-war veterans is, is to break the narrative wherever we see it. And this is a situation clearly where it, it, it absolutely calls for that. The episode we did a while ago on, um, on reproductive access, reproductive freedom and justice in the military, we talked about how the Dobbs decision did not, it didn't really alter much fundamentally for anyone within the military trying to get abortion care through the, the, the federal route. It is completely sewn up. It is, there's, it's just not happening. So now we're seeing the long trail of states' rights people moving into it and taking more. And, and like, like Jake, what you were talking about, about it, that it is being made illegal for people to help, to transport people, to give people food, to take someone to an appointment. And especially if it's in another state, which I know I heard stories about when the Dobbs decision came out, that there were providers that were like at the south uh, eastern corner of New Mexico and said, hey, I will help anybody that ends up coming here, but you have to get there. And so can people take 
a thousand mile drive to go and do this appointment or go and have this procedure. I know that we were very skeptical at the time of uh, the military's response. You know, the secretary of defense came out and, oh, fucking woe is me. We're going to make sure that people can go to their thing. And, and it, it, I mean, it was, it was the usual kind of, you know, uh, em empty courage that we see in, in, in public re releases and stuff of that nature. But, um, that, that, that it has done nothing. No one has done anything. We talked at the time about how Joe Biden through the federal government could do a lot of things to help facilitate people being able to get abortion access. And he won't. He's, I mean, we know that from his history, there is no fucking chance in hell that Joe Biden or his administration would end up doing something like that. Something to extend legal rights to a whole bunch of people who have been denied them, um, because they live in states that don't want to end up respecting that. Yeah. And so just a couple of thoughts on that. I mean, um, you know, we saw, we saw referendums like kind of statewide in the last, uh, election, um, like uh, across several different states, you know, some, some, whether or not, um, abortion rights would be codified into, uh, state constitutions, state, state law and whatever, and other ones basically, um, being put to the people to vote against abortion rights, abortion access. Um, in every case uh, across the country this past November, well, I guess it wasn't just November, but um, si since the Dobbs decision came down, in every single case, um, the people voted for abortion rights and abortion access. And this includes states like Kentucky, Montana, uh, Kansas, yep. um, you know, in addition to California and, and, and wherever else. But I mean, these firmly red states, I mean, when, when, when it was put to a ballot, when it was put to a ballot, the people voted the way they wanted to vote, you know? So I think it really is indicative of, of, um, you know, we, instead of, instead of this demand, uh, for this or that politician, just as you're saying, Henry, about Biden, I mean, I remember, um, basically what, what part of what turned me into a socialist was the, was was it a betrayal? Probably not, but the betrayal I felt um, coming from the Obama uh, presidency. You know, I wanted I wanted him to push for for universal health care, ending the wars, so on and so forth, right? And then he he didn't even lift a finger for these kind of things, right? Of course, D he had a majority Congress. He could have codif codified um, abortion rights then and there. He said he was going to do it day one. Did it happen? Not in eight years, right? So yeah. Um, and we certainly, I don't think that there's anybody out here that thinks that Biden is any more progressive than, than Obama. And when Kamala Harris was asked after the Dobbs decision comes down, um, you know, they, everybody got the draft decision at the same time, right? In April. Um, and so the administration had a couple of months, we spent those months out in the streets, this, like telling Congress, like do like like pass a law you know you have the majority of congress line your people up and pass a law to codify these rights into into law um but then um you know kamala harris is in some interview and she's like someone asked like um what do you say to the people that that wanted you to do more and she literally says do what now do what now you know and so i mean it's like if there's any any listening to the people um, coming from the the administration, then then any number of things could have been discussed on the table and and ready to move by the time the Dobbs decision came down or before. But of course, that was not their priority, not even a little bit, not a stretch. They were busy trying to 
um, you know, uh, blame Russia for every problem that, that, that's going on in the United States or whatever, however, however they work. But um, to, to Giovanni's point about the student loan forgiveness, um, it's already been put on hold by the Supreme Court. Um, and, and, you know, I've got, uh, I pulled up this tweet because I kind of remembered it from when, when that whole thing, like when Bi Biden first canceled 10 grand of the student loans. So Jim Banks, representative Jim Banks, I don't know what place he's from, but uh, he says student loan forgiveness undermines one of our military's greatest recruitment tools at a time of dangerously low enlistments. I, I was a recruit for college, like basically like I wanted, I needed college money. Um, so the GI Bill is one of the main recruiting things that um, the main reasons why I ended up joining the military. And, the, and then there's all, an entire letter to President Biden by all sorts of members of Congress. I mean, I'm looking at it. It looks like it's maybe, I don't know, maybe 20 of them or something. Um, but it's a letter basically um, decrying uh, Biden's move to to cancel student loan debts, um, basically for the unintended, unintended consequences, as they call it, of uh, of uh, whatever impacting military readiness and recruitment and so on. So, yeah, no, I think they're all very good points. No, the, 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 the student debt thing that it, 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 as it, uh, how it arrived and the tiny, tiny amount of debt that it would actually relieve if it happened in the way that they wrote it was, it was such a, I mean, it's just like putting a piece of chocolate on top of a, a cake made of bullshit. You know, that it, that it, they needed something to, to just barely say, please come out to the polls. And that was it. That was the only thing. And now we're seeing, like, like you said, it's being held up in the courts. And, and this goes back to what I was mentioning earlier about the, about our, you know, our consumer nature and stuff that, that, you know, companies crave getting all of that interest from student loan debt. I mean, it, there's a whole industry is built around trying to, to, actually make money in that way. And when you see the response of the right to this tiny, tiny little student debt thing and talking about that it somehow threatens readiness, well, there's a lot, there's a lot of other shit that threatens readiness before this. But even the military, if you were to join it, you would end up getting, I mean, it, I guess it depends on how it was set up, but you would get 60 or 70, maybe $80,000 in terms of getting rid of old loans or stuff that could go towards college in the future. So even that, this is, doesn't even come close to it, but they can't see that. All they can see is, is missing dollar signs where they make money off people who just want to get educated. And it, it it's horrible. It's fucking horrible. Um, but, but again, you know, but that, but them thinking that it's a carrot, that this tiny little thing is, is a carrot to come out to the polls and that it somehow makes a difference and we get past the election and we know that it matters not. That it just, it, it doesn't make a difference. Because, because you got to vote next time. You got to vote harder. You got to vote harder. So maybe if you vote harder, then that, they will make it happen. If not, there's also the next election. You can vote even harder. You, know, you vote even harder, then, you know, probably that will happen. I mean, that, I mean that's the way it's presented to us, you know. No, the, the whole, this is, this is the, the most important election in your fucking lifetime. You have to be out here doing it. And Jake, to your point about, uh, about betrayal by Obama, you know, you're not the first, second, third, fourth, or fifth veteran I've heard say that there was very much so, you know, I remember I was getting out of the military right about the time Obama was getting elected. I was like, so excited. I'm like, yes, 
this guy's going to end Iraq. He might end up, I, I, I wasn't paying enough attention to Afghanistan at the time. That's a different story. But, but again, he did. He waxed poetic over this whole thing. And then election day comes and it's gone. And no codifying of abortion rights, no universal health care. And sure as hell, we're not going to stop our military from doing what it wants to do. But, but yeah, the sense of betrayal is, it's fucking palpable. It really is. I, yeah, it matters. It's interesting what you mentioned earlier about uh, one of the narratives that, that of the reason why you can't, you know, you can't do the, the student loan debt relief is because it will affect readiness. I think it was a congressman that said that, right? I forgot his name, saying that there won't be, that if you relieve um, debt from college students, then, you know, they will, it will loosen the, you know, less of the incentive for them to join the military. So in that sense, right, the military is your, you know, your, your last recall to, uh, to relieve yourself of, of crushing uh, student debt, right? It's so, a healthy society, right? It is a healthy society. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I, one of the things also that I want to bring up with that is that is the way that, that um, education is, is, is presented here as well. Um, for example, I remember when the, the 9-11 GI Bill came out, you know, you know every, everyone and their mother wanted one of those 9-11 GI Bill dollars, right? You have all these institutes, you have, you have college institutions or, or technical colleges that doesn't, that doesn't exist anymore because they were, they were racking up, you know, they had that scheme of racking up all those, you know, uh, GI Bill money and they were giving garbage as, as certificates, you know? Um, soldiers were, you know, going to these institutions, you know, getting the certificates and they couldn't do anything with it, you know, and they're just racking up all this money. And because of that, because of that, uh, it opened up an investigation and, and, and some of these colleges like here in Texas, uh, career choice, I think the name of it was one of them. Um, you know, it was ITT and some others, right. Did not exist anymore because they got caught in that corruption of just racking up all that, all that money you know, and just giving garbage uh, for certificates, you know, or for diplomas and whatnot. What you were saying earlier about commodifying, so so education is not seen as a as an investment for the future, you know, to, and, you know, it's seen as commodification for getting money right now, you know, for short-term uh, profits, et cetera, uh, preparing young people, you know, for the future, for the next, you know, to continue uh, the development of our society and, and our infrastructure and et cetera, you know? So it's, it's like, it's a sense of betrayal and it is bipartisan. This is bipartisan, you know? Um, but yeah, so it, it wants, you know, no one is, no one, you know, no one is seeing them. People are seeing them as, as, as a commodity, the students, you know, we're told to, you know, go to college, get a good job, blah, 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 blah you know, but we're actually commodities, you know, they're, they're seeing the students commodity. Like I said, these students, they got out of college already owing about from 80 to $100,000, you know, and they haven't really started life yet, <laughs> you know, and these, and these are, and these are actually mortgages, right? So the word mortgage, right, means, means death contract, right? Death contract. But when you get a mortgage in your home, um, you can foreclosure, you know, you can bankruptcy, right? You can file for bankruptcy, foreclosure, et cetera. But with student loans, you cannot. Student loans, you have to pay them. You cannot bankrupt your, your way out of it. You know, you have to pay them. Um, if you don't pay them, they'll take them out anyway. You know, if you work, if you get a, a government job, they'll take them out from there. You know, a social security, they'll take them out from there. They'll get that money, <laughs> you know. 
Um, and the thing is that they keep selling these, 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 um, loans because it's not the same, you know, you get a loan from a particular company, a bank, right? But they, they sell, they keep selling the loans to other banks and other financial institutions. They just keep, you know, going, they keep profiting off, off, off your interest of what you, of what you owe. Well, it's like if you, you know, like you mentioned the mortgage situation, which is, I think is a great example that if your house is worth nothing, if it, for whatever reason, you know, you had something, something happened to the house or there was, it just was that old or, or whatever, that the, all these conditions are things that, that a, a judge dealing with bankruptcy would be able to, to help deal with in some ways. He would have some power, some ability to do it with these worthless degrees that guys are getting and putting out thousands and thousands of dollars. They have something that is entirely worthless and there's no mechanism for them to go back to it. I mean, yeah, the, the, I know that the, the feds at times have gone after some of these predatory institutions, but they haven't gone after nearly enough of them. They go after, you know, the worst of the worst Trump university type places, but there's still a lot out there that are still doing the same thing. But again, how can you, how can you feel you've gained anything if you get a degree that is entirely worthless in the job market and you were told kind of like being in the military for however many years that these particular skills you're getting are going to be in high demand. Um, nobody telling the, you know, the infantry guys that, sorry, there's, there's really not much you can do about that. Um, that it, you know, it, it, again, back to the commodification that it is, it's just, it, it's money for them to make. It's not seen as an investment in the future. It's not seen as trying to change the nature of our country in terms of how educated people are or how they're able to converse about politics and, and the issues of, of the day. Um, yeah, it's, 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 uh, it's definitely a huge injustice. The final point I'd kind of like to make on it is, is, um, you know, the student loan debt, um, you know, the way I look at it is it's basically just supposed to be an anchor, um, that, that prevents, um, workers from having power, um, because, you know, I've seen it a lot of times, but you see the kind of professional jobs, let's say like uh, teaching or whatever, um, wh which requires a degree and sometimes um, the higher degrees, right? Like uh, uh, post-grad degrees. Um, and so, you know, you know, Ra Rachel, my wife, she like, she, she, she was a teacher and um, ended up getting fired and such. And so this is just why I'm using this example, because I know it kind of intimately, but, um, but it's what we saw was that, um, that there's sometimes a hesitation of, of these workers, uh, like the, these workers with degrees to fight back on things because they have so much debt they're trying to service, whether it be a mortgage plus a, a car payment plus uh maybe some medical debt plus their student loan debt and all that sort of stuff so um you know they may make um at least what i would consider to be relatively decent money at least for here in san antonio you know anywhere from 40 to sixty thousand dollars, and sometimes a little higher than that even but when you take into account all the debts that they have to repay um that money is basically gone and it, it, it's the equivalent of basically someone without a degree like a college degree or whatever making um twenty twenty five thousand dollars or something like when, when everything just gets cut out of the bill or whatever um we're all kind of in the same playing field and so that idea of of fighting back um becomes a lot scarier because as soon as like if, if you were to lose your job if you were to 
to be singled out by your principal, by your administration, by whatever, um, then, then, you know, those debts are still going to be there. Um, and, and you have a lot to lose, but, uh, but now you won't have the income to service those debts. And as Giovanni said, that that's why, um, student loan debt, which is held by the government, it's a political decision. It's a political decision to not make them, um, be able to be wiped out through bankruptcy, but they know that, you know, student loans are not a thing that the elite ruling class, uh, people have, they don't have student loan debt. They pay for college or you know, whatever. It's, it's, it's just not, not something that concerns them. So, you know, you hear someone like Trump saying that he loves debt, right? He loves debt and he, because then he can write it off of his taxes. Well, good for, good for Trump, but, um, but you know, I don't think Trump nor any of his children ever had student loan debt. Right. And, and so he wouldn't like student loan debt if that's what he had, because you can't wipe that out. Like he's had, um, the debts uh, wiped out from his actual terrible business since um, numerous times, you know, he's had that wiped out um, through bankruptcy and he landed obviously on his feet every single time, but that's not the way that works for um, families who have pursued uh, higher education. Exactly. Um, yeah, let's move on to our uh, next point uh, for 2022. Uh, the big elephant in the room, you know, is the, uh, the Russian intervention in, in Ukraine. Uh, that was very, I mean, I think that defined 2022 in, in many ways. I mean, because the United States went from from the COVID lockdown hysteria, you know, and and, and the COVID um, reaction uh, from people, particularly people, you know, more liberal, more conservative people, um, you know, the COVID restrictions and stuff like that. So we went from the COVID topic, you know, we were like in between the COVID topic for like the last two years or so before that, right? Uh, we went straight into the Ukraine crisis, right? With the Russian intervention. What I find interesting is for one thing, the narrative, uh, was totally, uh, targeting, uh, more, more liberals and more, uh, people who self-describe as leftists here in the United States, right? Uh, the whole narrative was, was focused on them and put in and getting them supported. So people that for. Uh, we find that within the activist community and, you know, people that before the Russian intervention, right, were, were anti-war, were against fly zones, were against NATO. Overnight, they became pro-NATO. This is very disheartening. You know, it was very uh, depressing. It was very uh, unfortunate, you know, that, that people that took that route. I mean, and the thing is that the, the reaction of, of the West uh, was very unprecedented, you know, because we, if, because if you're born in 2000, you know, you're born in the year 2000 or you're born, you know, in the 21st century, right? You've pretty much lived most of your life, uh, all your life under permanent war status, right? You know, you pretty much, I mean, I have, I have a 22 year old daughter and all her life has been war. I've been, all her life has been war, right? And. And for the West, things just been normal. It's just the unfortunate people in the other side of where the bullets land or where the cannons land, you know, those are the ones who's had their lives wrecked, you know, for the last 20, 22 years, 23 years. Right. Um, but people in the West, you know, you know, we either choose to follow the story or not follow the story. We can click the channel, we can you know, shop, you know, 
but there was no scandal. There was no, um, you know, there was no, you know, no disruption, no nothing. Right. Uh, but with the Ukraine, with the Russian intervention, right. All of a sudden, you know, the skies are flying all of a sudden, right. This was just the most, uh, obscene, most, most terrible thing that ever happened in human life. You know, uh, this is, uh, I remember one of the first narrative is, you know, um, that I heard in, in the news, you know, you know, this hasn't happened in Europe since the second world war, <laughs> you know, that's some of the, some of these, uh, these, these mainstream media outlets were saying, you know, which is a lie because I participated in, 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 in the, in the, in Yugoslavia, I participated in the bombing of the occupation of Yugoslavia, you know, and that happened not too long ago. It happened in the nineties. Right. And Yugoslavia was in, in the, the capital of the, the, uh, uh, Serbia was bombed for 77 days straight, day and night straight. Straight was on flames, right? You know, they they bomb news outlets, they bomb water treatment plants, they bomb uh, electrical plants, they bomb everything for seventy seven days straight, you know. Um, but uh, for some reason that wasn't scandalous, you know. For some reason that wasn't, you know, that was okay, <laughs> you know. Uh, but uh, but you know, with this intervention, you know, the whole, you know, I was in the East Coast, I was in the New England area uh, this summer. And I was around the time of Pride, Pride, you know, when you know Pride, Pride Month, right? And and I was in the Boston area. I was in the you know um, Connecticut, New you know New York, you know up in New York, you know Rhode Island and stuff like that. You know, I could have swore we got invaded by 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 you know LGBTQ Ukrainians, right? Because everywhere you went, <laughs> everywhere you saw a Ukraine flag and you saw a Pride flag next to it. You go to the restaurants. You go to you know you go to uh, you know, they were like, they were like, uh, drop from, from bridges, from overhead passes. You know, you went to posters, you went, you know, everywhere, everywhere you went, everywhere you went, you know, it was just so, it was just so intense, you know? Um, uh, and, uh, it was just ridiculous. And the thing is that the narrative that we get here in the United States is just very one-sided. It's very one-sided because, and there's also a lot of Disha going on here because this operation started in the Russian intervention started in, in February of 2022, 20, uh, February 24th. But the war in Ukraine didn't start in February. War in Ukraine actually started in 2014, you know, 2014, because, it, you know, after the, the Maidan, Euromaidan coup, or the Euromaidan post, right? And I've, and I've had, I have discussions and arguments with people, with activist people saying it was not a coup because this, it was the people out there, the workers and blah, 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 this and that. And, and telling me that, you know, a coup is, you know, coup is when the military takes over and blah, blah, this and that. No, that's not, that's not how coup works in the 21st century. You know, you know we just had a, we just had a, we just had two coups back to back uh, a few weeks ago, you know, in South America. And, and, you know, no one is talking about it. The 21st century um, is not, is not the typical, you know, the general takeover and, you know, and, and military coup. That's not how coups work nowadays, right? Coups work in many, many facets, in many ways. Uh, but yeah, so the war in Ukraine started in 2014. The war in Ukraine started when, uh, with the, uh, the ouster of the president that was, that was trying to balance, that was trying to balance, uh, the lot of his country. He was, he was trying to balance, you know, it, it was his share, his country shared a huge border with Russia. So Russia is a natural, uh, a trading partner for his country, for you, for, you know, but at the same time. Uh, there was aspirations to join the EU, which is a, which is the economic bloc in Western Europe. Right. Uh, so he was, so this is a president that, you know, that, you know, this, you know, people talk about, well, he was corrupt and everything, but 
Ukraine has been, I mean, and I'll go back to that. Ukraine is, you know, since the, the fallout of the Soviet Union in 1991, Ukraine didn't, didn't, didn't fare too well after, you know, um, well, this is something, it's just something that just didn't happen. Um, but yeah, so we have, we have this president and, and, uh, in Ukraine, he was ousted in a push, right? There was a, a gathering, there was a, a protest, there was, a, a, a you know, outside in, and we call Maidan Square, they call Euro Maidan. Um, and there was another, there was, a, a, you know, it was, it was the call it revolution. I remember, I remember during that time, there was this, this girl that did a, a, me, a meme in YouTube, uh, they called her the Ukraine girl or Ukraine girl, right? Uh, and she was talking about how, how, you know, how terrible things are, how, how they're getting beat up by security forces, how this and that. And she was calling for it, for it. The whole video was kind of a commercial type of thing. There was a lot of riots going on. There was like people and, and with, with, you know, with riot gear and just beating up on people and fires and everything where she was calling this for, for foreign intervention. That's what she was, that's what, the, that's what she was calling. She was dubbed the Ukraine girl. Um, uh, there was, a, there was another person doing the Syrian war, someone called Syrian girl. She got, she got, she was, it was a plate from Ukraine girl Syrian. Um, but, uh, um, well, yeah, so, so this person was, was, was ousted, uh, and there was by, you know, by all this pressure and by paramilitary outfits, right? Right-wing outfits, um, fascists. Nazi outfits, I mean, full-blown Nazis, right? They celebrate and they honor this, uh, this, this, this person of the Second World War and Stefan Bandera, who was a Nazi collaborator. Um, that's who, that's who they, 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 they honor. That's who they, they, you know, they're, they're um, they're calling for, right? Um, they call themselves Bandavistas and all that, right? So they're the one who actually use the coverage of the protest, right? To actually oust, oust, oust a, a government. Uh, I was the president who, who ended up taking refuge in, in, uh, in Russia because there was actually was attempted to kill him actually. So this brought into power the most white way, most vicious, most rude, uh, russophobe, um, elements, you know, into power, you know, here in the United States, what's interesting is if you go back to the media, the media before the before the, the, you know, before, uh, the special, uh, before the intervention in, in, uh, in the Russian intervention this year, last year, in 22, right? This is what they were, this is what they were saying about Ukraine after, right? This is what the Guardian was saying. The Guardian said, welcome to Ukraine, the most corrupt nation in Europe. That's what the Guardian was saying before actual, the, the intervention, right? That's what they were saying. This is what the Guardian said after the intervention. The fight for Ukraine is a fight for liberal ideas. That was the head. That was the head. That was the headline, right? Um, before the Ukraine intervention, right? This is what Reuters, uh, Reuters said about Ukraine. Ukraine's neo Ukraine's in Ukraine's neo Nazi problem, right? So here is their, you know, their, their, uh, they're admitting, they're acknowledging, right, that Ukraine has a neo Nazi problem, right? Uh, but this is this is what Reuters said after the operation, right? For foreign fighters, Ukraine offers purpose, comrade, camaraderie, and a cause. It's what you um, what Ruta said, right? Vox said before, Vox News said before the operations, right? Uh, 
A Ukrainian comedian, comedian turned president is embroiled in Trump's impeachment mess. That's what Vox said right before the, uh, the, the operation. But this is what CNN said right, right after. Uh, Ukrainians are giving, the, are giving two lessons in democracy that Americans have forgotten. Uh, this is what New, New Europe said, right? New Europe said Ukrainian presidents, Ukrainian presidents rule be, because becomes increasingly corrupt and authoritarian. That's before the operation, right? They said Ukrainian presidents rule becomes increasingly corrupt and, and authoritarian. This is what they said afterwards, right? Zelensky, the TV president turned hero. So you saw, so, so the way the, it, it was so, well, what captured me in, with this conflict is how, how things just went, you know, just, you know, how this amnesia, how things just, just shifted so abruptly, you know, for one, in one way, Ukraine was being described as a certain place. I remember they were calling Ukraine a magnet for the international right wing, because there were a lot of people traveling. There were a lot of, one of the, uh, uh, you know, people of, uh, very from all over Western Europe and Canada, the United States, you know, one of the most right-wing elements, you know, paramilitaries, you know, lots, you know, neo-Nazis that were just flocking into, into Ukraine before the operations, right? Uh, they went from, from talking about that to talking about Ukraine in another light and just, just happened just in the date, you know, it happened just in the date, you know, another light, how, how Ukraine is, is, is a symbol of freedom and liberty and, 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 and liberal ideas and just fighting for its, for it's, you know, for, for all that is good and all that is democracy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, against a, a tyrannical, uh, Russian army. What people don't understand about this, that this is, this is something I've been going on for a while. Uh, this war didn't have to happen. This war is happening because there were people that wanted to happen, you know, uh, because of threat that poses Russia, just the same threat that that China poses to, to, they say to the West, but it's actually to the United States. And that threat is not a physical threat as, you know, that there will be Russian troops and Chinese troops, you know, landing in, 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 uh, in the beaches, you know, in New York and nothing like that. That threat is the threat of, of the United States losing power and hegemony around the world and, and China offering uh, a different model for particularly the global South, right? And, and a, an assertive Russian, a Russian economic model in a, in a Russian economy that is improving, that is actually um, linking, was linking to Europe, you know, was integrating with Europe, um, and the threat of losing Europe to Russia, the threat of losing Europe to Russia and China and leaving the United States out. That was, that's the biggest threat. And I think, uh, was it uh, Michael Hudson? I said that he, Germany got defeated three times in the same century. But that's what happened. That's what happened because you know, you got the first war and second world war, but one of the, the biggest losers in, in this gamble is, is Germany. Germany, you know, you know, I think it was 30%, 40% of his energy resources were, they were, they were from Russia, you know, they were made to, you know, to make an abrupt cut, you know, to Russian, uh, energy, you know, um, uh, yeah. So, uh, so that's some of the things that the commie is, you know, canceling. Uh, the media, like I said, the media shut down everything that was Russian, all the media outlet Russian, you know, it was all overnight, was just, was just taken out of Facebook, was taken out of Twitter, was just shut down from YouTube, you know? Um, so, you know, so we won't, we won't get a, a Russian perspective of things, you know, uh, the canceling of athletes, that's one of the things that also caught my eye, right? 
because I don't recall that happening to the United States in 2023 in, 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 in 2003, in 03, when the United States invaded uh, um, Iraq, you know. Um, Russian soldiers weren't allowed to participate in this, um, in this uh, World Cup, you know. And that even happened before that because they were canceling Russian athletes before that. I think they were canceling, you know, for the last two Olympics, Russians weren't allowed to, to, to come out with their flag. They had to come out with a different flag, right? They had to come out, you know, they, they couldn't identify as Russian, you know, and that's the last two Olympics. Um, you know, the huge Russophobia, the, the, you know, the open Russophobia, because I remember, I recall, you know, the Islamophobia that was really open, you know, was, you know, the Islamophobia was really open during the wars in Iraq and everything like that. Uh, but they became problematic and you got, you know, you got Obama going to, you know, you got Bush for one thing going, you know, he's a, he's a friend of, you know, uh, you know, uh, 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 Muslims, et cetera. Obama tried to do the same thing. So he tried to tone it down. But with, with, with Russia, it was like all out. I mean, it was just open. The Russophobia against Russia just open. And, and for, and I don't know, you know, it would be problematic if, you know, if, if media, or, you know, be open about, let's say, uh, uh, anti-Semitism, right? Uh, there were, you know, probably, people would lose their jobs, you know, if they were anti-Semit, right? It would be problematic if people were open about their anti-Blackness in media, right? But it seems not to be problematic to be anti-Russian, though. <laughs> you know, uh, it just is right, right there in the, in the open. Um, yeah, so far up to now, the uh, United States have given Ukraine about $100 billion. I mean, a few weeks ago, Zelensky was in, in Washington, he addressed Congress, you know, you saw him getting a, a standing ovation. You saw Kamala Harris uh, and uh, uh, Nancy Pelosi with a big old Ukrainian flag behind him. Uh, and, you know, he came to get more money. He came to get more money, you know, up to now. Um, in less than a year, you know, the United States have invested about a hundred billion dollars um, in this operation. And, and what makes this operation so dangerous is that it keeps escalating. Keeps escalating, keeps escalating, keeps escalating. Now, when Ukraine started, right, it was estimated the Ukrainian military was uh, roughly around from six hundred thousand to a to a million dollar to a million uh, main army. You know, uh, recently in the Russian, they intervened with about one hundred fifty thousand uh, troops. Now, you, now the uh, the the Russian troops they increased their numbers to up to over three hundred thousand more, but the the uh, the Ukrainian troops, I think the last time I checked, I heard uh, from Ukrainian sources, also Russian soldiers, also American uh, generals saying that they're down to about 200,000. So it's a big slaughter, right? There's a big slaughter going on there. And not only that, that Pol Poland re uh, revealed recently that they have lost about over a thousand of their troops, of what they call volunteer uh, troops that volunteer in the, in the uh, so we don't know how many other uh, foreign foreign soldiers or foreign troops are in there, right? They keep increasing uh, because now the Ukrainian numbers are, are are dwindling. So now they're 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 flushing people from you know from neighboring uh, countries, Poland, you know, Romania, etc. Uh, I think the British also revealed recently that they have special operation in Ukraine as well. British special operation. Okay, so we've seen these things escalating. We've seen escalating, escalating, escalating. And what is sad is that that the uh, the American anti-war uh, groups, right? They, they're virtually silent just with that, you know, they were silent about it, uh, with, you know, minus a handful of, of, of people, you know, that are actually talking about it, actually trying to bring things to light, you know, trying questioning. Uh, but for the most part, you know, the, 
the left anti-war, traditional anti-war movement here in the United States, they have, you know, drank the juice, you know, they had drank the, the Kool-Aid and they're actually promoting and they actually push it for more. You know, they say they care about Ukrainians, right? But they're leading them to a slaughter. Russia cannot lose this war and the United States cannot lose this war. That's how they're being seen. This is actually a proxy war and it's not being presented that way, but it's a proxy war because Ukraine is not allowed by the West, is not allowed to, to surrender. They're not allowed to come into negotiation. Uh, the last time they were, they were about to go into negotiation, that was early in the war, they were in Turkey and uh, uh, Boris Johnson from, from UK flew to Ukraine and told, uh, told Zelensky that, you know, if he goes into a, a uh, if he goes into negotiations and peace talks with Russia, you know, that he will not get supported. Not allowed to go for peace. Um, so they were, you know, for what we're seeing is, you know, more war, more continuation, more escalating. This can get out of hand. This can involve more. Uh, it can get, actually leave Ukraine and, and, and bleed over other countries as well. Yeah, the, um, the rhetoric about, you know, this being the first, um, you know, major combat or major whatever in Europe since World War II, you know, the, 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 it's like everything that happens south of, of, let's say, Ukraine is just ignored. You know, what's happened in Syria, what's happened in Iraq, what's happened in Afghanistan, huge numbers of refugees that would be, you know, have been, have been pouring over. Um, but Giovanni, I like how, you know, the, 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 how you presented that, you know, that the, so much of American foreign policy is using somebody else's blood is using some other proxy force, some other place to, to do our dirty work. And that keeps, that keeps the headlines clean here in the United States that keeps more troops out of, out of Arlington, you know, being buried. And, and for that reason, it's pushed that much further to the bottom of the pile. As far as mainstream media goes, we get this very, you know, binary reportage on the media that it's, it's just, we just want to support Ukraine. Like you said, everything that was in the news before February, 2022 is, you know, it doesn't matter anymore. It's not important. It's not relevant how corrupt the country is. Um, and I wanted to touch real quick on, uh, on food prices, um, in a little bit, I'm going to talk about, uh, Yemen and Afghanistan and that the Ukraine conflict is definitely having a negative effect on food prices in a lot of places. And so for people that already don't have enough to eat, for people that are under, under blockade and sanctions like Yemen, um, uh, Afghanistan is a little bit different situation, but still have a lot of people that need to feed. And they're not concerned with this. They're not concerned at all that the driving up food prices, making it harder for uh, commodities to flow around. I mean, you know, I think Yemen, Yemen imports like 60 or 70% of its fuel and they're, you know, people are supposed to be surviving in that way. But, um, but no, Giovanni, like you mentioned, man, this is not simply good guys, Ukraine versus bad guys, Russia. And we have to understand that because they're going to beat our heads over with it. They're going to, and, and they have been, you know, the Russians are bad. I, I find it so fucked up that we're willing to reject their athletes. You know, like you said about how America has been treated, you know, was treated in 2003. Our athletes were told to not, you know, to, to, to not participate after how many, you know, hundreds of thousands of people have died in Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, Yemen, et cetera. Um, 
and it and it's it's just because it, it's that easy to play on it's that easy to play on our russia phobia you know we've been you know from the cold war up until now we've been told we need to hate russians not why not how we just need to hate them it's just a it's just a it's a binary choice that has it uh that they don't want us to think about yeah, let me add let me add what you said there also uh to mention there about you know proxy wars and playing with somebody else's blood right this is what dan uh congressman dan kreshaw said back in may that's pretty much uh, uh the early part of the uh, of the operation is that investing in a destruction of an adversary military without losing a single american american troop strikes me as a good deal that's what congressman kreshaw said right uh so if there's any illusion that, you know, we have to, you know, I know there's a lot of, in, a, in a liberal left, you know, there's this illusion we have to support Ukraine because, you know, they're fine because an invasion, invasion and stuff like that, right? They need to understand that this is, is pre-planned. This shit is, you know, this is, this is what, you know, this war didn't have to happen. You know, this is what people like people in power are saying, you know, uh, Ukraine by, Ukraine's the one mission. Ukraine, Ukrainian forces own in mission, right? Uh, Ukraine generals. Ukrainian uh, President Zelensky, right, said that Ukraine is losing roughly from 200 to 300 men a day. <laughs> Do, uh, can you imagine Americans, you know, you know, about 200 to 300 Americans being lost a day in Iraq? You know, what, what would be the uproar here in the United States? You know, 230 a day, <laughs> you know. Uh, it's what been going on for, what, uh, 10 months now? You know, 10, 11 months now? So... So you just picture that. See how much, how much, how much uh, numbers is that, right? Uh, this is what uh, Lindsey Lindsey uh, Graham said, right? Uh, it's in the America's national security interest for Putin's Russia to be defeated in Ukraine. So this right there, it tells you right there, this is not, you know, the little guy David fighting Goliath, right? This is actual a a a, a an American war using Ukrainians as counterfeiters. Using Ukrainians as, as, as troops, and what a lot of Americans don't understand is that Ukraine also, this whole thing started because of NATO expansion. Since, since 1991, NATO's been under march. It's been pretty much expanding, getting closer and closer and closer to a Russian uh, border. Right? Russian that uh, is a it's a security threat for Russia, having NATO right at the doorstep. Um, and ever since 2006, even before that, because Yeltsin, remember Yeltsin also talking about you know that. They can't, he can't sell, he can't sell uh, to his people, you know, NATO being that close to Russian border, right? Because if, if you understand what NATO is, NATO was created as a, a, uh, a military organization, military alliance to confront the Soviet Union, not the Soviet Union to confront Russia. So NATO is an, is an institution, it's, an, it's a military outfit created to confront Russia, right? Uh, so this having NATO right at the doorstep has always been a a uh, a point of of anxiety for Russia, right? Um, all the way back to two thousand six, you know, two thousand six at the uh, uh, the uh, uh, conference in Munich, the Munich conference in Germany, I was set so uh, by the uh, by the you know relatively uh, new President Putin of. Uh, Saying that you know this business of NATO continue moving eastward, right? You know it's it's you know it's it's a hinder to our security, and it's a stop. Uh, just as 2021, 2021, uh, right before the 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 operation started in 2022, right? The Russians sent a, a a memo to to the White House, you know, saying you know this is you know we're sensing that 
you know, you know, things are getting intense. Things are getting escalating, right? So there was a buildup. There was a, a, a NATO buildup in, in Eastern Europe, mainly in Poland, um, and also in Lithuania, all the surrounding area. Uh, there was a a, 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 a Ukrainian military buildup in the east around the, the, the Donbass area, right? There's a buildup there. They've been for the last eight years, they were just giving weapons up the yang yang by NATO, right? And they were being trained and all that, right? Um, to confront. It was just, and, and there was a military buildup in, in, in Russia, inside Russian territory as well. You guys remember back in 2021 in December, uh, Biden kept talking about that. If you, if, if, you, if, if Russia invade Ukraine, you know, America will not stand for this and blah, blah, and that, right? You guys remember that? So the Russians, right, sent out a memo sent a, actually a memo to the White House uh, saying, you know, we need to de-escalate. You know, this is getting, this is getting intense. You know, this escalating. We need to de-escalate. And these are things that, that needs to happen. This is our, this is, our, this is what, what, what we're asking. You know, what they're talking about is, um, there's, they mentioned that divisibility of security. What does that mean? Divisibility of security international law or international security. What that means is that you cannot, um, you cannot uphold the security of one state by, by, by playing on the security of another state, right? The same difference. So what Russia was saying there that we are feeling unsecure. We cannot permit NATO in Ukraine. Why? Because, you know, where, you know, you can put, you know, you'll be right there in our doorstep. You can put missiles in our doorstep. You can put nuclear missiles in our doorstep. You know, <laughs> this is unacceptable. You know, and what happened? What happened? You know, what happened? Uh, Blinken, Biden, you know, they got that paper and just crumbled it up and then wiped the buck with that sin and they give it back to the Russians. Things, you know, so that's something that doesn't come up when they, when we talk about this media, right? So I just want to highlight a couple, couple things that kind of haven't been mentioned yet. Um, before kind of play, like y'all, y'all have said a lot and it's all very good. Um, so I do want to add some of that, but, um, in certain circles, like like basically in certain ways, the uh, there's opportunistic right wingers uh, in in Congress and whatever that have basically um, kind of played on this conflict opportunistically to basically make themselves not supportive of biden on this basically like if this was if this was uh trump's conflict which i tell you one thing if trump would have won then this would be trump's conflict trump would be trump would be in this as much as anybody and all those uh right-wing con congress people uh would be backing him on this um the same way that he uh was in against the Syrian war. And then basically when it became his war, he, he was backing it. So there's no difference here. Um, but there are, there are some, some right-wingers and right-wing organizations that are building a, uh, I guess something of a name of themselves. And, you know, you'll hear them critique NATO or whatever. Trump did the same thing before he was president. Um, but anyways, don't, don't believe that hype. I mean, um, you know, we, we've even heard, uh, from cer certain folks like, um, you need to build with these right-wing organizations that, that are, uh, critiquing NATO and whatever. And, and 
frankly, you don't, you don't build with right-wing organizations ever. I mean, that's, um, that's not something we, we need to be doing, um, because while we may agree on the surface about, uh, uh, you know, an anti-NATO stance, um, we can't sacrifice, uh, our, our anti-racist, anti-sexist, anti-homophobic stances to stand with them while they're being opportunistic on an anti-NATO line. So, you know, it may, it may kind of, uh, bring up the question of like, oh crap, what do we do then? Right. Um, it means we need, we need to build, um, a left opposition to this war. And I do kind of want to speak to, uh, what jo Giovanni laid out, cause he's absolutely right. The, you know, what, what usually gets called the left has been kind of defeated at least up until present um on the uh on 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 this issue on 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 these events um but i do just want to shout out um with full disclosure that i organize with uh answer coalition sometimes um but, but the people's forum and answer coalition have uh initiated uh basically a demonstration at, at Times Square on January 14th. Um, it's basically NATO expansion, no peace in Ukraine, yes. Um, and so it's calling for negotiations. It's calling for an end to the proxy war in Ukraine. So I just wanted to mention that real quick um, because that is, you know, it's in New York City right now. Um, I think there's going to be a demonstration in San Francisco and um, and there may be maybe others across the country, um, but you know it's been endorsed by Veterans for Peace, uh, Coping, uh, my organization, Party for Socialism and Liberation, and and, and many others, right? Um, so, anyways, just wanted to put that out there. Um, so, yeah, you know what 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 what's what's kind of funny to me is you we're here doing a year year end review, right? Um, and I don't really know what, what other, uh, media outlets are doing for their year in reviews, but I'm sure that it's that this conflict is going to come up on any year in review. Right. But the funny thing is, is that it's literally going to end like, like it's like this story is going to be begin basically what y'all have said, um, with the, with the invasion in February, right. That that's where the conflict is going to begin. And, and what's the reason? Well, because Putin is evil or something, right? And I, I, I remember, you know, um, with the Iraq war, well, Saddam Hussein, he's crazy. He's evil. Uh, Kim Jong-il, Kim Jong-un, they're crazy. They're evil, right? Like all these, Assad, he's evil. Like all these people um, are built up as just being evil. And therefore it is our, our God-given right as Americans um, to see their destruction. But like, like you said, Giovanni, this is, you know, this is not in a, this is not at all in a vacuum. Um, you know, the, not that it even begins here, not by any stretch, but I do think there is a ramp up of, uh, of anti-Russian sentiment with, um, kind of the Russiagate, um, stuff, which basically lasted the entirety of, of Trump's presidency. And I think that's one, like, basically they, like that was where the work was done to really defeat the left. Um, basically, they preempted the left 
um, on this conflict. Uh, basically, they they knew which way the winds were blowing. They knew that the that 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 the national security apparatus was was moving away from the conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, and so on, um, and into what they call great power competition. And, you know, that was even codified um, into being, I could be wrong on this, but if I remember right, it was 2017. So basically Trump's first year in office. So as uh, Trump is getting getting called a, a, a Russia a, a Putin stooge or whatever I don't even know um but basically a show for Russia that he's basically this uh Putin's man in the White House or whatever he's basically I don't remember for sure that it started when 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 he was president but at least he 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 continued the policy of um the turn towards great power competition which in that case really means Russia and China um, so the U.S. turned away from uh, the war on terror, if you will, as their major strat, like like national security strategy, and into uh, great power competition. Meaning they're turning their eyes to uh, to Russia and China, precisely for the reasons that Giovanni mentioned, um, because this is where the the true competition to U.S. hegemony in the world. Um, uh, that's where where the challenge is going to come from. And so, you know, the, the Russiagate thing did two, two important goals um, and basically uh, defanged whatever the hell was left of the anti-war movement um, even after the Obama years. Because like Giovanni said, people that we've been in, um, you know, that we've been in agreement with about NATO, NATO is, is a, is, a problem and an evil in this world alongside our military industrial complex. Um, basically, the demonization of Russia through the Russiagate um, narratives, almost all of which um, are, are uh, pretty, pretty much baseless. Um, it basically seeded the idea that maybe NATO is necessary to to withstand um uh competition from from particularly Russia if you happen to be uh more of a liberal or um from China if you happen to be more conservative and so you know we went through uh Trump's last couple of years where basically he his anti China rhetoric and thus the anti-China attacks um, in the U.S., like anti-Chinese attacks, like on Chinese Americans. And we know that means basically just Asian Americans because uh, the right wing doesn't really care to distinguish. Um, we saw those ramping up like, like, like um, towards the end of uh, Trump's presidency. But then as soon as uh, Biden comes into power, it's right back to uh, anti-Russian narratives. So you know, the U.S. Uh, national security um, apparatus, they view, they view both of them as, as our competition, as our enemy, right? Um, this couldn't be further from the truth. What, what, like, they might be the enemy to uh, the rich. They might be a convenient um, 
reason to keep making weapons instead of um, providing healthcare, education, um, solid jobs, union rights, and all these sorts of things. Like they might be a useful excuse for for um, for for the rich to basically continue to uh, do those things, like like pump weapons to to all the different military industrial complex contractors and such. But they like Russia and China are not the enemies of of the American people any more than Iraq was or Syria or any anyone else. Um, this is. This is an empire um, lashing out against competition, um, what it views as its competition. Um, and we don't, we as, as people do not need to engage with this. And we certainly, or not, no, we do need to engage with it, but we don't need to support that. We need to engage um, in the opposite. We need to basically say, it, like, you're our government and you, your responsibility is with the people. And I'll just say kind of the, to close out uh, these thoughts for now, at least, um, you know, war, war is not a contradiction under capitalism. War enables um, production to continue and the profits to keep flowing. But in socialism, like, in, like because, because in capitalism, right, what's capitalist system serve? It serves capitalists. It says it. It's right there in the name. Socialism serves the social, the social, you know, the social apparatus, the people. Um, now, War is a is a terrible contradiction um, for socialists because every every dime that you have to spend on weapons is something that can't be um, you know that takes resources that you cannot um, spread for the better of the betterment of the quality of life of the people and so you know as socialists like there is a there is a reason there's a a people interested reason to end war. In capitalism, there is no such um, reason for it because in capitalism, the, the, the war continues to continue that profit motive, that imperialist uh, drive to, to extract resources and labor and markets from other territories and so on. These aren't the things with socialism. So, um, you know, we, we need to not only fight against, like fight, fight for, uh, you know, fight against these wars, but we also need to fight for our rights to things that are our human rights, like housing, food, those, you know, the things that we all need to survive, um, childcare and, and healthcare and all this sort of stuff. So by fighting, by fighting against the war machine, you're fighting for the human rights that we need here at home. And by fighting for the things that we need here at home, you fight against the war machine. It's the same struggles. They're they're very interconnected. We see that we see that from from Martin Luther King. Um, basically, the triplets of evil. It's uh, uh what consumerism, racism, and militarism. I don't remember if those are the exact words that he used, but those are the the concepts. Um, and so, you know, that's what he that's what he was organizing under. Um, and and really, the same principles apply. Um, despite the whitewashing and the the taking, the stripping away uh, MLK's radicalism and so on. Um, it really is the same things that that um, that we were fighting for then, are the same things we need to fight for now. And there's really, you know, we we need to be in unity on the, those issues and and supporting each other. Hey, Jay, I want to um, thank you. Thank you for that. Um, I want to point out what you were mentioning about the great great power competition. That was um, that was something that came out with Obama. Uh, so about Obama, and that's when he, uh, uh, when 
and it coincided with the withdrawal of troops from Iraq and repositioning them in, in the Asian Pacific. Uh, because at that point, you know, they were already targeting China to encircle China and contain China. Um, and another thing that I want to point out, you know, in this, uh, in this great power competition, this great power competition comes from this report, this random, uh, that came out that, uh, is, and the anxiety is China, actually, that's the anxiety. Uh, so they came out with this report back in early 2000 that says that, you know, by 2030, uh, China will surpass the United States and, and, and production, economic production, economic wealth, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? Uh, they will surpass the United States. The United States will not have, uh, you know, economic domination anymore, uh, you know? Um, so that, that put a lot of anxiety on people. And that's why you got the little, that's why you got a lot of push from the Trump era, you know, China, 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 you know, and you got the Hong Kong, Bryce, you got the Xinjiang, uh, what do you call it, Xinjiang, they call it the quote unquote genocide, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? That is to put pressure on China. Um, China has a project, yeah. China has a project called the, uh, the Belt and Belt Road Initiative, right? And that was as a consequence to the pivot of Asia. Because what China is, is, was anticipating is that they will block because you know, China's economic port, you know, they, 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 they're the coastal lines, they have the China Sea. So that's where, have, that's where most of their export, um, goes out those lanes. Those lanes right now is controlled by, by pretty much the United States and its allies, uh, you know, Japan, Australia, stuff like that. Right. So anytime those economic ports can be shut, you know, so anytime China can be shut, can be blockaded. Uh, you know, from, from exporting, you know, and their economy can be stymied, you know, and their development can be stymied, right? So they anticipated that. So that's what they came out with the, with the built in, the new Silk Road, the, the built and road initiative, right? Which is connect to the world, you know, not by sea to the, to the science sea, but by inland and connecting, connecting into East, you know, Eurasia, Russia, and into Europe, right? Uh, the EU, EU was, the United States was the EU's uh, number one trading partner for, for, for decades, right? For decades. But in 2021, China surpassed the, uh, the United States as, that, uh, as the, the EU's uh, number one economic partner, just like Australia. Australia also had, you know, China has been their number one economic power, economic trading partner. Also back in 2020 and 2021. So that brought added more anxiety to the capitalist United States, to the imperialists, because that's what it's imperialist, because um there's capitalists in the United States that have no problem in, in moving their 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 production lines to China, Vietnam or or, or, or Bangladesh, you know, and use the, the the cheap, you know, labor up there to pump out their production and put down their, you know, their, their, their items that went out of Gidget, so the gadgets or whatever, right? It's mostly the imperialists. The imperialists, right, they're the ones who be, you know, losing U.S. power. You know, no administration want to be that administration judge. You know, just like back then, we say, you know, no one would be, you know, who lost China back in 1949, you know, or who was, you know, who lost Vietnam, you know, that's why it lasted so long. No administration want to be the, that administration. I said, you know, you're the one who lost American power, right? Uh, so that's what, that's what brings anxiety. So that connects Russia and that connects with the coupling of, of, of Europe, sanctioning Russia, uh, driving away, you know, uh, trying to, trying to get the, the EU 
uh, from, you know, from, from breaking away from China as well. And that put the EU in a bind as well, because not only the, not only the, the military industrial complex is, is profiting off this war, but also uh, big oil is, is as well, because, um, the EU will get its oil mainly from, uh, its energy production was mainly from, from Russia, which is sanctioned now, you know, from Iran, which is sanctioned as well. You know, they were getting it from Libya, which is Libya was pretty much destroyed back in uh, 2011, you know, and they still don't have a stable government yet, <laughs> you know? Uh, so the, the, so the EU's choices of energy production, right, has been slowly dwindling. So guess who's their number one, who, who became their number one, you know, oil, you know, energy producer, energy, uh, seller, the United States became, you know, the United States became, so that's another thing that they coupled. It's important to note there as well that, um, I mean, not to get too deep into the point, but, um, you know, conventional oil production, right. Is basically the direct tapping into the ground of oil, res uh, reservoirs, and then you just pump it out. Right. And there's your oil. Um, the U S is basically tapped out, um, completely tapped out of, uh, conventionals. And so what that leaves are much higher priced, um, what they call unconventionals. This includes and dangerous, right? Mountaintop renewal, um, coal, uh, tar sands, fracking, uh, off, offshore drilling and those sorts of things. So they're much more capital intensive. They require much uh, more amounts of, of technology and are much more dangerous, all driving up the costs of oil production. So um, U.S. oil production is extremely expensive compared to uh, the, the countries you just listed that are all sanctioned, right? Um, and so it's, it's just another important thing to consider that even if um, U.S. oil um, and just, you know, fossil fuels in general um, becomes the, the major source for the EU, in addition to the transport um, across the ocean, um, the price is going to be sky, sky high comparative to what the, they've been getting from Iran, Russia, and others. The results you're getting in Europe right now is the, the deindustrialization of Europe. And that's where Michael Hudson comes out saying that, that Germany has been defeated three times in, in one century. Germany was a powerhouse, the economic powerhouse in, in Europe for a long time. But now they're talking about rolling blackouts. They're talking about in power, right? You know, they're talking about telling their citizens not to, not to take showers, you know, or skip days to take showers, you know? Uh, so now they're, they're being quit and increasingly be industrialized uh, because of the industrialization of Europe right now. A lot of the, the American companies, you know, that were operating in Europe, now they're being transferred back or European companies are being, are being transferred to the United States. So this is, you know, so Europe is, is, is a huge loser uh, in this ordeal and they keep supporting it. They keep supporting it. Um, Again, it's like <laughs> you kind of mentioned in the U.S. though. Um, it's those kind of center left, uh, kind of liberal parties in, in, in Europe that are the ones like, like backing this the most. I mean, I think just off the top of my head, it's like the coalition led by the, the green party in Germany, that's backing this the worst than the, the new, um, new government there. Um, although with that said, Angela, Angela Merkel just, uh, came out admitting that, uh, the Minsk agreements were just, uh, just for show and that sort of stuff, um, in yeah, Ukraine, basically to buy, 
buy time for Ukraine to build up their defenses and weaponry and so on and so forth. So um, it's not to say that her party wasn't um, fully on board with this whole thing too, but... Um, Eric, jump into... Yeah. Uh, right now, I'm just enjoying listening to you guys go back and forth. Um, no, it's, it's, it's important. It's important that we understand that it's, that this is a game where players don't easily exit people that are aligned with the United States who say, I want to buy this from China or I want to buy this from Russia. They pay a huge premium to do those kind of things. And so lots of people, I'm sure lots of European countries just say, it's not worth the cost. It's not worth it, you know, to try to go back on that. Like, and it, and it's, and it's so sad to see, you see, you know, Germany taking a, a bigger war posture than it has in a long time. You see countries like Finland, um, throwing away their neutrality and deciding that they, they want to join NATO, um, that, you know, it, it is. And, and the thing about the Chinese is that the Chinese have our number. The Chinese understand how to give the things that we would give them without killing everyone, a bunch of people in the process. So they have essentially become better capitalists than Americans are, or America is now. And it, it's going, you know, the shift is going to be, it's, it already has been in a lot of ways. Um, you know, you see the United States really going after even some of its allies, Saudi Arabia with the oil stuff recently with, with not willing to increase production. And, you know, the, I think that a lot of countries are getting, getting, uh, they're getting wise to understanding that the United States is being put in a spot where the old world order is, is starting to crumble a little bit. And, you know, we're, you know, the, if the U S was a person drowning that, you know, bits of desperation are going to start coming across and, and it's, uh, um, it's terrifying to see, but it's important. People understand that is the nature of how the United States sets up its national security policy, its economic policy. Um, because for them, it's no, it does, it, it, there's no difference is that we're, we're going to beat you competitively, whether it's on, on the battlefield or whether it is in economics and we don't care what parts of those bleed into the other and, and so forth. Let's, uh, yeah, I mean, there's a lot to talk about here with, with this opera. I mean, this is going to be continued for throughout 2023 and, and hopefully the outcome is not more escalation, more countries involved in, and into a more devastating war, you know, that engulfs us, the whole, the whole, the whole country, because, you know, uh, and that's something that a lot of, you know, liberal left, you know, imperialist leftists or imperial liberals, imperialists or whatnot, they still understand that between Russia and the United States, there's roughly 20,000 nuclear uh, missiles, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so that's something, you know, that's something that needs to be, you know, understood, you know, uh, firmly. Um, but let's, uh, let's, let's, uh, rest this for a moment and let's move on to Henry. Henry, what are you, what, what are you watching? What are you looking at? Um, I want to take a few minutes to talk about Yemen and, uh, for anybody that's a, a long-term listener of the podcast, we've talked about Yemen, uh, many times, uh, over many different steps between what has been happening with it since the war there began in, uh, 2015, um, just to give a little, a little background. So everybody's on the same page that the Obama administration in 2015 offered to Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates to provide very specific support for operations to happen in Yemen, 
because the Saudi coalition is fighting against the the Houthis there. Um, that they certainly, of course, one of part of it was them trying to establish their own um, compliant government there, and and this. But the the key of this, the key to the whole the whole thing to to remember is about the support that Saudi Arabia cannot give to itself. So we're talking about in-air refueling. We're talking about intelligence support. We're talking about aircraft parts and the mechanics, the contractors to install and repair them. And even after that, we still, we also have some special operations support for um, driving some of the airstrikes there. Now, um, generally in the past that the, when we've talked about it, that, that, Yemen has been, it's, it's still very much locked into, um, a horrible situation there, but there has been some small improvements. There's, uh, been an ongoing ceasefire for some time, which has, uh, slowed the violence down. Although the, the official ceasefire has expired now, and they're hoping to find ways to, to kind of keep it going. But the, as far as agreement on having a ceasefire that it actually has expired. Um, it's important to really note that for the people in Yemen, that the majority of the casualties, and there are a lot of casualties involving offensive operations, but the majority of the casualties are people, um, who are starving, starvation and malnutrition, um, along with, um, it being, and I, th I think this is still accurate, being the largest out known outbreak of cholera in, in history. Um, and so Saudi Arabia has used a blockade to keep uh, fuel out, to keep uh, uh, food out, or at least keep the number of imports overall for food and fuel very low. Um, now during the ceasefire, it's believed that, that about approximately 50% of the fuel that Yemen needs as a nation to operate itself is, um, is actually getting into there. They get about, I think it's like 70% of their um, fuel from exports, or excuse me, from, from imports into the country. So that's really important. Um, they also have begun allowing a few flights into places like Cairo to try to get people who need severe medical treatment that they're not able to get there in Yemen. But certainly this isn't something that's available for everyone. And in a place that has been um, the site of this conflict for many years now, um, and especially understanding the economics there, how many people could actually afford to transport themselves to Cairo to get that kind of treatment. It's certainly not, not very much. Um, and even with the, with the ceasefire, it's important to note that people, like I said, people are still getting hurt. Quote, the, despite the decline in hostilities, an average of 44 civilians were killed during each month of the truce from landmines, IEDs, which are roadside bombs, unexploded munitions and continued violence in conflict areas. So even though that there aren't active airstrikes going on, and I say that as far as what is known, there's probably stuff going on behind the scenes that um, we're not seeing. Um, but it's important to note that in this situation, that a ceasefire, it's not necessarily a ceasefire for everybody, that not every area of Yemen is, is safe for people to be in. Um, so there's, you know, there's still, uh, while the airstrikes haven't begun again, there's still definitely violence in some areas. Now let's move on uh, for a second to Joe Biden. When Joe Biden was running for president, he talked about the war in Yemen and about ending the war in Yemen. Then on one, on January 20th, 2021, that idea kind of went out the window. Um, 
It's now they're trying to use the language that they are providing, that the weapons are providing, which is munitions of all sorts, um, that they are defensive, not offensive, which of course us understanding, you know, former members of the military that any, you know, weapons can be offensive and defensive. It's a distinction without a difference. Um, so saying that, that they're only sending defensive weapons, it, it means almost nothing. Um, and then we go, we connect back a little bit to the, um, sorry, um, to the war in Ukraine that, um, that through the state department that, uh, there has been a whole bunch of steps that have been taken to provide, uh, visas and humanitarian relief for people trying to come from Ukraine to the United States. Um, let me find my other thing here. Um, that, uh, and this is, this is a comparison to Afghanistan, not Yemen, but in terms of understandings that as of early August, um, they, uh, our immigration folks had received more than 97,000 applications for this program for Ukraine. I think, I think it's called United for Ukraine that the State Department coined it. Um, and it approved more than 68,000 um, without charging anybody any fees. Now we compare that to the humanitarian parole program that many Afghans are trying to use in order to come to the United States because there are not, there, there hasn't been a firm stand from our government on trying to help more Afghans come. It has just been on what already existed for the State Department. Um, you have in the 10 months of data that were looked at for this particular article, it shows that the immigration collected nearly $20 million from Afghan applicants. Um, there were more than 66,000 people applied and out of thousands of applicants, just 123 were approved. Um, and, and and just, you know, to understand, you know, like I said, you know, both for Yemen and Afghanistan, that we're talking about a very, very impoverished country. For each Afghan that applies for the humanitarian relief, it's $575 a person. So for a family of four to afford to just apply, they don't actually get anything yet. They just apply. They have to do in-person interviews and a whole bunch of other steps. So for a family of four, we're talking about $2,300. I don't know many American families that would be able to afford something like that, let alone people in Afghanistan or Yemen. Um, so it's really important to understand that double standard, to understand what, something going along with all those Ukraine flags is that um, Ukrainians are, are able to come here and people from the Middle East, you know, at, at least looking at it from this, this standpoint, are, are not, or the, you know, very, very suppressed and why is is that acceptable why is it you know that and it's kind of that connection with things that are happening at the southern border is that how much can america do in someone's backyard and when people are need refuge they you know and our wars have created millions and millions of refugees most of whom are still in the middle east or other places in camps or maybe they've made made the dangerous trek across the mediterranean to Italy or Poland or, or perhaps Ukraine too. Um, the, um, the last comment I'll, I'll, uh, I'll make about it and let you guys jump in is about, uh, a recent report from UNICEF and UNICEF is of course the United Nations fund for, uh, for children. And they, their report says that since 2015, approximately 11 
thousand children have been killed or wounded in the conflict in Yemen. Um, and of course that doesn't, you know, and then, you know, past that we're talking about kids that are, are dealing with starvation of, uh, in horrible, horrible levels. Um, and it's interesting to look at the paradigm of how, um, the Trump admit, how Democrats acted about Yemen during the Trump administration. You had people like Samantha Power and Jake Sullivan coming out and saying that this needs to change. It was a very easy target to criticize Trump. Um, and then, uh, and in fact, during that time, there was a war powers resolution that was passed by the Senate only to be vetoed by President Trump. We had the similar situation that came up um, earlier in December where Bernie Sanders um, put in a, a war powers resolution of the very much the same, same stuff in terms of trying to cease our military's uh, assistance there to Saudi Arabia. Um, I saw from Democracy Now! that they didn't, you know, that it was, it was interpreted to see that like Bernie wasn't expecting it to pass, but he was hoping that if like 40 senators were able to jump onto it, it would be assigned to, uh, MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, the, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, that if he or his government chose to break the ceasefire, that they could potentially be in trouble. Now we'll end up having to see what happens with that resolution in the new year, because we now have a Republican house to deal with. So everything is going to have to start brand new. And it's, it's a serious question as to whether they can get the support needed to attempt to do it again. I don't think that they can. Um, I don't, I don't think that it's, it's something that's going to happen, but anyway, so, um, that's my brief update on Yemen. Love to hear what you guys, uh, what you guys think. Um, but it is very much still something that needs to be kept, kept an eye on. But for the moment, there has been a bit of relief for the Yemeni people. And hopefully in the new year, we'll see, uh, see if something can happen that changes that. I mean, I can, I can speak a little bit here and let, let you go. I mean, the, the, the point I really wanted to jump, jump on there, uh, you know, something that we kind of didn't really talk about, uh, with the Russia, Ukraine and NATO conflict is, is the immigration, right? I mean, um, we, we see it over and over, uh, uh, demonization of immigrants where they're coming into this country. And I mean, obviously, uh, the, the right wing in Europe has, has really, um, kind of made a lot of, of strides with the, 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 basically the anti-immigrant rhetoric, whether it be Libya, Yemen, uh, Syrians, Iraqis, whatever. Um, but yet, you know, when it comes to Ukraine, there, there seems to be that, that, um, ongoing hall pass. Right. And it's hard, it's hard to, to look at it as anything other than, um, white supremacy, really, um, just racism through and through. Uh, but you know, then there's, there's the other side of it that, you know, uh, is a little more nuanced, um, and requires a little more context, which is, uh, the weaponization of, of refugees or weaponization of immigrants. Um, you know, my wife, she's, she's a Cuban American, um, and for decades, Cuban Americans have gotten way more, uh, immigrant privileges, 
um, than, than other Latin American immigrants um, and refugees from, from U.S.-backed coups and, and economic sanctions and so on. Um, so, you know, um, the, yeah, for years, the, the conflict in Yemen has been, been dubbed the world's, uh, worst humanitarian crisis. Um, I think Henry laid out, uh, uh, the statistics well, and I mean, I think, you know, the statistics, they're, they're all basically coming from, um, relatively, uh, Western oriented, uh, places more often than not. So. Um, we don't know exactly if the, the tragedy there is, is, uh, is that is actually indeed worse than, um, than what's even being reported. Um, it is also, I think kind of important to note as well that, um, that Yemen to, to a certain degree, I don't want to overstate this point by any stretch, but, but Yemen to a certain degree is also being leveraged as a as a proxy war um between between Iran and Saudi Arabia um you know to to a certain degree the the uh, uh Yemenis are being backed by the uh by by Iran and and obviously uh Saudi Arabia is being armed by by the US and so you'll hear this endless endless demonization of Iran um, backing the, the forces in, in uh, Yemen. But then, you know, as Henry laid out, like at least recently, we haven't really seen the same sort of uh, critique of U.S. arming of, of Saudi Arabia. So, so Saudi Arabia, um, and yeah, and I lived in Saudi Arabia for about a year. I was a trainer there uh, with the uh, Saudi National Guard. Um, they, you know, and they, at one point during Obama, actually, uh, they made the largest uh, purchase of U.S. weapons in history. Uh, you know, and, and, and some of those weapons ended up in the battlefield. A lot, many of those weapons ended up in a battlefield in Syria. Like Syria was also another proxy war. Um, in fact, in fact, uh, it's interesting because I was just thinking this earlier. Syria, you know, was like a like a prelude or of what we're seeing in 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 in, uh, in in Ukraine right now because it was kind of a mini world war in, in Syria with all these actors or everybody you know these actors were involved uh, from different sides and whatnot. And back then, also, um, the American anti-war left was kind of you know kind of put in a state of paralysis. I think they didn't move much. Um, in that word, so, uh, but yeah, so Yemen and uh, Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia, a lot of people don't know Saudi Arabia is, 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 is a fairly, it's a, it's a new country. Uh, it was founded in, 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 uh, 1923, um, I I'm sorry. It was founded in 1930. Um, uh, and, uh, it was a creation, virtually it was a creation of the British actually, um, what we call Saudi Arabia today, um. Uh, there was a, a lot of permanent population there. Mostly, there were a lot of nomads and, and people traveling back and forth. It was part of the uh, the Ottoman Empire domain, uh, but it was created by the British. British, you know, back the the ruling monarchy, which which to this day, country, you know, rules Saudi Arabia, which, which the area has a number has the name of the the ruling family, which is a family of Saudis. 
the Saudi family, so the house of Saud, that's where you get the name Saudi Arabia from. It's the house of Saud. Um, and they're the ruling family and they were the ruling family put in power by the British. Um, the British, um, when they seceded, when they ceded power to the Americans, now the Americans right now has a responsibility has, of, of propping this ruling family to continue, you know, propping this ruling family, but their, their military is fairly new also. Uh, I think the first time that they saw action was actually in the, in the Gulf War in 1990. That was the first time they saw action. So they have a fairly new, new military as well. Uh, but yeah, man, just like you said, uh, Jake, it's, it's, uh, uh, it's, you know, there, there's, uh, so what didn't hit, need to happen either. Uh, it's being, it's being, uh, actually there's a huge media block here in the United States. Most people really don't even know that it's happening. Uh, most people don't even know that American resource is, is going to this war. Um, like I said, the, the Saudi military is a very fairly new military. It's fairly young military and they rely on a lot of Western trainers. And so you, so you have a lot of British, a lot of American, you have Swedes, uh, you have a whole self Western. Uh, military uh, trainers there, you know, trained this, did this army because, you know, they're very dependent on uh, not only Western arm, they're dependent also on, on Western strategy, they're dependent on Western military teaching because, like I said, it's a fairly new, new military, you know, they have that experience, you know, this, they're getting their experience in, they're getting their experience in, and, 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 and yeah, but not even them, not even them because a lot of their, their, the, they do a lot of air wars, a lot of air bombing, but they're not committing a lot of ground troops either. So a lot of the ground troops in, in Yemen are being outsourced to other countries. One of them being Sudan. Uh, so there, there are Sudanese, uh, troops on the ground there. Um, there was one report at one point, uh, years ago that I was reading that, uh, Colombian, Colombian mercenaries being killed in Yemen. <laughs> So, so yeah, so a lot of the ground troops that are, that are, that are fighting in Yemen, you know, they're, mer they're merc mercenaries from all over from different parts of the world. Um, you know, uh, so it's a lot of, you know, a lot of, a lot of hands involved in this, this conflict and you're, and you're absolutely right. It's being, it's, it's, it's a kind of sticking into Iran, you know, uh, and what people don't understand is this, that, you know, Putin said recently that the, the collapse of the Soviet Union was the greatest geopolitical catastrophe. You know, and in recent history, and the reason why he said that because a lot of these wars that we're seeing today, like the Iraq War in '03, um, the Syrian War, Libya, it wouldn't, you know, it would have had happened if the Soviet Union was still was still in, in, in intact because the Soviet Union worked as a bulwark, worked as a balancing of U.S. power. Without this balance, without this bulwark against U.S. power existing, right? You no, know, being vanished. Uh, there was no restriction. There was no restriction of U.S. power, you know, so you, you know, U.S. power, U.S. imperialists felt unrestrained, unrestrained to do whatever, because they didn't have this bulwark to worry about. And that's another thing that was that with the collapse, with Yemen, for example, most people don't know that Yemen just recently re reunified. Uh, they reunified. There were two countries. There were two Yemen. There was South Yemen and and North Yemen, South Yemen was, uh, their, their official name was the People's Democratic Republic of Yemen. They were the only socialist, openly socialist country in, in, in what we call the Middle East or the, the Arabian Peninsula. Uh, they were, and they were, they were aligned to the Soviet Union. Um, 
they were lined with the Soviet Union. They reunified right after the the collapse of um, before the before the Soviet Union was officially collapsed, right? But after they fought the Berlin Wall, uh, they reunified. Uh, then, uh, and this happened during the time of the first Gulf War. So, you know, the first Gulf War against Iraq, which Iraq was also prior to the collapse of the Soviet Union, was this country like kind of like Ukraine. Hmm. Balancing both powers, you know, to its advantage. They were balancing the, the they were balancing the Soviets, they were balancing the Americans, they were buying from the Americans, they were buying from the Soviets. The Iraq served as a bulwark for the Arab for the Arabian and Peninsula against to put, you know, as to check Iran. That's how uh it was perceived by by uh by by uh, mm-hmm. uh, Western Allied uh, uh you know states. In the Gulf and whatnot, uh, to balance Iran. Uh, so they fought an eight year war with each other. Um, and, uh, uh, yeah. So with, with the collapse of, of, you know, the Soviet Union, now you have the unification of unit, uh, Yemen, uh, you have the war against, um, Iraq, which I want, which before was an ally, but it suddenly became a pariah overnight and became a pariah, became the most sanctioned country in the world at that point, you know? Um, then fast forward to 203, uh, it was, it was utterly destroyed by, by, by a Western invasion, uh, where by the way, most, most, most Americans don't know that the Ukraine had third largest contingent of troops in the Iraq war in 03, they had about five to 7,000 troops, um, and, and, and they were in the Iraq war. Um, so yeah, so, uh, before. The collapse of the Soviet Union, the only Arab state to have uh, American presence, troop presence, was was Egypt. The Sinai Peninsula, they had a, a presence of American troops there. Uh, they have a, actually have an international force there, actually. Uh, uh, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, pretty much every state in the Gulf has, has, has uh, troop presence, American troop presence, uh, two largest um, Qatar, for example, they just had a World Cup there, has the largest uh, Air Force, American Air Force base there. And Bahrain has the largest, um, you know, uh, you know, naval base, you know, in, in the Indian Ocean and whatnot, you know, around, in, around, around that area. Um, so, yeah, so, so what's happening in Yemen is another thing, another blind spot here with the United States, which is pretty much a blackout, you know, pretty much no one's talking about it. This is it's a great tragedy happening there, but it's being fought as being package as a, a, uh, a war to contain Iran, to contain Iran and, and, um, you know, with the, uh, uh and to, to great devastation of the Yemeni's people. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's, it's one of those things that I look at and I think about my perception of things before it became anti-war. And that you, you wouldn't have thought that the United States would allow itself to do something this blatantly evil, you know, and it, and it's, it's wrong. It's, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's ignorance on my own part in terms of, of understanding American history. Um, but it's just so unbelievable, you know, it's just so you, you we really get to the meat and potatoes of it and like, you know, children starving and, and for what, you know, to make Iran look bad, 
you know, to, to, uh, be a bulk work for Saudi Arabia to do what it wants to do. But these are the kind of choices that we see. These are the kind of, these are the kind of, you know, meat and potatoes of American foreign policy using proxy forces as, you know, to, to grind away at Russia and Ukraine. This is, this is what we do. This is the, you know, um, remember listening to Noam Chomsky talk about, you know, the difference between discriminate and indiscriminate attacks in terms of reading about the Iraq war or Afghanistan and such. And that, you know, this is, you know, it, there's no explaining this away. There's no explaining away that 500,000 kids starve to death. There's no, you know, no, no different than like what happened with Iraq sanctions in the, in the nineties, you know, and I've, I've read things that are talking about that the, um, you know, that period, what was it, 91 through 2003, before the Iraq war began, that far more horrible things happened to Iraq in that period than if you were to look at the entirety of the Iraq war. And it was not that, it was not that the Iraq war wasn't a horrifying thing. It was that so much happened in Iraq, you know, open, you know, uh, no fly zones and all kinds of, all kinds of sanctions that we don't even actively talk about those kind of things. You know, it's, 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 you know, Giovanni, you've helped, you've helped keep, keep Cuba and, and Latin America in my mind very much that, you know, that, that this is what the Cuban people have lived with since, what was it? 59 was when the blockade first started. It's just, un, it's still unbelievable to me. And yet this is the reality that we're dealing with. Yeah. Let's, um. Let's move on to uh, Jake. Maybe some better news on this front. Um, so, again, this is uh, like many of the topics we've discussed. It's not, um, it doesn't start or end in 2022, but um, we're seeing a continued resurgence in the labor movement in the United States. Um, so... You know, I, I, I used to uh, be a shop steward and leader in my uh, hotel that I, that I worked at until uh, basically about this, well, basically until the, the pandemic, but I continued on as a leader until about this time last year. So, I mean, I've always followed the labor movement pretty, pretty closely. And, um, you know, if you look back to um, 2018, that's about when we really started to see kind of a resurgent labor movement, something that had been stagnant for, oh man, basically since, um, since the late 70s, basically through the entirety of the, the neoliberal economic turn. Um, so in 2018, we saw, oh, and another thing I just kind of want to highlight here is that when, it, when, when you really look at it, um, this, this resurgent labor movement uh is really driven largely by um by women dominant or majority occupations as well so I, i'll just say straight up like the, this resurgent labor movement is being led by by women by and large um but yeah so 2018 and 19 um you saw the most basically 2018 you saw the most uh workers out on strike um, since I think it was like 1986 or 87, something like that. Um, and then that number increased again in 2019. And these were led, um, primarily by teachers and hotel workers. Um, 
And then through 20 and 21, uh, we started seeing a lot of the, the quote unquote essential workers, those who are forced to work in dangerous uh, working conditions um, while uh, basically the, I guess you, if you want to call it non-essential workers um, were laid off like myself um, or, or a lot of the more professional jobs had um, retreated back into kind of work from home jobs. Um, to whatever degree they could. So, I mean, really there, um, I think we all kind of saw uh, Amazon workers and, and um, delivery, delivery people or whatever starting to sta stand up um, through 2020 and 2021. Um, this year we've seen, so basically 21 through uh, this year, the end of this year, uh, we saw the first um, Starbucks store organized and in, in um and then I think by the end of this year it's approaching so in 2021, late 2021, the first uh Starbucks store organized and won their union. And by the end of this year, I think, or this past year, I think we were um sitting at about 300 stores. I know um, you know, we've got a few few unionized stores here in San Antonio, even. Um, and they've been, uh, on national strike. A couple of them have gone out on a couple of national strikes. Um, what, like one of the strikes was a one day strike. Starbucks still refuses, retaliates against, um, unionizing stores and workers and refuses to come to the, the negotiating table. And in some cases refuses to even recognize the union. So they continued on with a three day strike, um, just this past month in December. Um, and then we saw, uh, the railroad strike and I guess, uh, Biden's just going to be our punching bag tonight, but, um, so the railroad, you know, the railroad strike was extremely significant in that, um, I, you know, it's a very notable turn in the rhetoric of some of these more, um, kind of long established kind of legacy unions a little bit, um, where, you know, they, they, the workers, um, basically refused the tentative agreement made by the union and, uh, and, uh, it's actually several different unions that have to agree all at the same time, but the, the, the unions and their employers. Um, and so the question was asked whether or not the, the railroad workers were go out, would go out on strike. And you really saw uh, Biden and other Democrats basically turn their backs on the the railroad workers, uh, and and I don't remember the exact quote. I kind of wish I did, but the the statement was something along the lines of um, they had to supersede uh, the 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 union workers' uh, will because to go on strike would cause great economic damage to, to the, uh, to the economy, um, great damage to the economy. And, you know, these workers were basically asking for, for days off for sick days, um, and, and better working conditions. And so I, you know, it's incredible that that statement can just fly in any society, but you know, when, when you basically say you can't go out on strike because it would cause great economic damage to our system, 
what you're basically saying is that um, the workers are so important, so important that we can't let you not work. But also it means that we can't like, but you're also kind of saying we can't let you take sick days. We can't let you have um, better working conditions and so on. So we're happy for you. Like we're all about y'all driving our economy and ba basically making sure that our economy runs seamlessly, but you can't have rights. You can't, you can't um, have the wages you need. You can't have the time off that you need. And th again, this is a, th these are railroad workers. So, you know, um, don't need to get into too far into the implications of overworked railroad workers. You know, I mean, this, that creates a dangerous scenario. Um, and so on. And then the final one I want to kind of highlight here is the, uh, basically the, the adjuncts, teachers, assistants, and whatever throughout the, uh, university of California system who were out on strike for, I think, uh, six days or sorry, six weeks. Um, it was the largest, uh, strike of its kind, I think ever, but at least in a, in a, in a, in a long time. Um, don't remember the exact numbers off the top of my head, but one, um, large raises, uh, assistance towards like childcare, healthcare, um, certainly didn't win everything they wanted, but, um, it was the, it was the gains they could get right now. And this, the, the contract is only two two to two and a half years long. So they'll have an opportunity to continue organizing and, and, and come back, um, come back to the negotiating table in the near future. Um, kind of buoyed, buoyed by their successes from, from this strike and, and, and the negotiations on this. And the last thing I kind of want to mention, um, is that while, you know, we, there's been great strides made in, um, in the labor movement in the U S uh, we've yet to really see, um, it translate into any sort of, uh, anti-war position, anti-imperialist position to, to any significant degree. Um, I think that, the the rank and file members of unions are, are anti-war by, by and large, as is the, the U S population. If the U S was to actually vote on whether or not we were to go to wars, we would rarely ever go to wars. But again, as we've talked about basically from the top. Um, that's not, that's not how this so-called democracy works. Um, so, you know, I think, uh, a lot of the problems with that is that, um, uh, leadership of unions, um, have gotten a little too cozy with the democratic party, which as we've discussed throughout the evening is a war party. Um, and so we need a break. We need a break away. Um, you know, just in my own union. I saw numerous times where we would go out and block walk countless workers doing countless hours of block walking for democratic politicians that haven't done anything for us yet. Um, I think we need an independent labor movement, independent of the, the, the major capitalists and pro-war uh, political parties. Um, and then we can let the politicians come to us when they need something. We can say, well, we need something too. You need my vote. We need you to, to, to act on this. We need you to act over here. Right. And so, um, it's time, it's time for, uh, the rank and file to really start to examine the, the democratic structures within their unions to really examine where their unions stand on, on different political issues and to, to examine where their unions stand on, on, you know, war and imperialism and so on. And, um, why do we keep giving, 
um, our dues money, why do we keep giving our labor power and whatever um, into uh, politicians that continue to back a uh, trillion dollars in, in, you know, for the military industrial complex, but they can't deliver on, on free health care for every worker. They can't eliminate our student loan debt. They can't do this, that, the other thing, right? So it's a really, it's, it's, a, it's an exciting moment in the labor movement, but we've got to keep pushing, um, especially those who have had uh, seats in power in the, the labor movement for too long, or maybe not too long, but anyways, they got to start, like we've got to start putting pressure on those labor, labor leaders at the very, very tippy top who, who maybe have enjoyed their um, cozy dinners with the uh, Democratic Party establishment. Um, to, to, to start to move them to the positions that, that the working class really needs them to be moving into. Saw today in the news, they were talking about that the um, congressional staffers at, at, uh, at Congress are, um, that they've, they had some kind of agreement that about organizing with the Democrats and that today that the Republicans wanted to push back with them going to be taking control of the house and not wanting to allow them to do the same thing. And the article finished by talking about that the legality of that is really suspicious. If people, if the, those people, you know, the, the staffers and whomever, all the different people that, that make Congress work, um, want to organize, they should be able to organize. It should not be just by us, us a swing of the pen of the house speaker or whoever happens to be the senior person in charge to say, you guys can't go and end up and end up doing it. And of course I'll, I'll mention the one that sticks in my craw the most. And that is that the, you know, we, we still have it on the books that the military cannot unionize. And even if they were, you know, forbidden from striking, even if there were specific rules about it, it, they can't do any of that. Um, but it is it is the most important thing, and like you said, Jake, is that the the these uh, you know lots of labor folks are are basic intrinsically anti-war. They are people that that see the the values and the understand the costs of you know sending money into foreign you know billions of dollars into foreign policy when you know there's so much that can be done with that money here at home. Um, so, but it but like you said, it is a, it's definitely a hopeful note. I I I. That was one of the things about 2022 that I just loved is I loved every time I would get a positive labor headline about, you know, people, whatever they're doing, if one Starbucks store gets unionized, you know, taking those steps, because eventually it is going to be a snowball. Eventually it's going to be something that has grown so much that they have to take more time to appease the, the needs and the, and, the, and the desires of people who are, are organizing. You know, what, one other uh, thing, because you mentioned the military organizing, and this was, this was fascinating, and I really don't know where, where it all went. But um, so Governor Abbott of Texas uh, sent Texas uh, National Guard um, member, like took the Texas National Guard to the, um, to the border earlier this year, maybe even um, the end of, of, of 2021. Um, but this article I'm looking at from... February 16th, 2022 is from the Army Times. 
Texas guardsmen on border uh, start unionizing to combat difficult conditions. So I don't know the legalities and whatever of guardsmen, if it's just wildly different than um, regular army and, and, and the reserves. But um, <laughs> I love that story from earlier this year. And I really kind of got to examine what, what happened with that. Because like I read that uh, a while ago and I was like, this is amazing. This is cool as hell. <laughs> Yeah, with, with, with stuff like that, alongside um, some of the um, Defend the Guard legislation that is coming around about taking, about governors not so easily giving over their their troops over to whatever federal mission that, that, that comes along. And I think, I think that's great. I, I'm not updated on it right now, but, uh, but no, really, really great stuff. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I think we're pressing for time. Uh, and I think I wanted to, um, want to mention something before we end the night, uh, which is something that, uh, that I keep, that I'm actually very, you know, actively watching and connecting the dots, uh, and in a way it's a byproduct, it's a byproduct of this war in Ukraine, it's a byproduct of, of, of the war in, in Iraq, actually, you can, go, you can go that far back, you know, and, and Libya and Syria, there's and I think you mentioned it earlier, uh, uh, Henry, which is the, the break of the old order, you know, the break of the old order, right? Uh, and, and I want to specifically uh, look at, you know, the global South in this and particularly Latin America and the back and forth that's been happening, you know, with, you know, um, in the global South, you know, like I said, this can go as far as go, you know, it's a byproduct of the current war, but it's obviously glimmers of it started to present itself back in the early two, in the early two thousands. You know, um, particularly with the uh, with the uh, the war in in, um, in Iraq. You know, when uh, Bush pretty much um, you know came out with his policy the with us or against us. You know, <laughs> and and. In that particular war, particularly in South America, you know, there are voices that I say, no, we're against you, you know, in this war, because it's, you know, you don't fight terrorism with terrorism. I mean, that's what uh, Chavez said. That's why President Chavez of Venezuela, you don't fight terrorism with terrorism. And in a, in, in a uh, uh, you know, on a uh, uh, televised uh, speech, you know, particularly in, with the war, I think it was before the war in Iraq, uh, televised, that was the war in, in Afghanistan, was a televised speech. Uh, President Chavez uh, came out saying, you know, we, you know, we sympathize with, you know, you guys said it was attacked in 9-11, we sympathize and, and, and this is uncalled for, this is a criminal act, this is a criminal act, you know, uh, that was done against the people of the United States, you know, uh, but you don't fight terrorism with terrorism. And then he started showing pictures of dead Afghan children and dead Afghan people uh, with bombings, you know, with, uh, with the U.S. bombings that happened shortly after you know, the attacks of 9-11. Um, and that got him in hot water. Um, they actually got the, uh, the U.S. ambassador in, in Venezuela, went to see him the next day and, and pretty much told him, told him that he needs to come back and he needs to come back on TV and retract what he said. You know, told him that, you know, he's the president of that country and his ambassador, the United States went over there and told him that he needs to come, come out in, in public and retract what you said. Um, he said, no. Uh, and that and that kind and that kind of started a a chain event because Chavez 
uh, came power, Charles became the first, you know, open left, uh, leftist government in Venezuela, you know, socialist government in Venezuela, socialist president, self-declared socialist president in Venezuela. Uh, he, he broke, you mentioned Cuba earlier, uh, he broke uh, in a way the sanctions or not, not the sanction per se, but he opened the way for, for other Latin American countries to, to open relations with Cuba because at, up to that point, every country in Latin America, right, did not have relations with Cuba, uh, minus, minus Mexico. Mexico never broke relations with Cuba, but every other country in Latin America broke relations with Cuba because they were ordered to by the United States in you know, 1960. And um, um, Chavez broke that. Chavez broke that. So what, what I'm trying to get here, right? We're seeing we're seeing it in the twenty in the, in the 2000s. We're seeing the global South nations, you know, be more assertive. Uh, the, this chain reaction, South America, right? Uh, got other uh, previously either you know countries that were, that were ruled by either conservatives, you know, uh, governments. Uh, you know, they were ruled by conservative governments or, or, or liberal, you know, liberal bourgeois governments, you know, uh, having for the first time, uh, leftist governments, you know, uh, coming to power, central left governments coming to power. You saw that in, in, um, in Ecuador with Correa, you saw that in, uh, um, in Bolivia with Evo Morales, you saw that in, in, in Argentina with the, the Krishna, with Nestor and Christina Krishna. You saw that in, in kind of in Chile with uh, with Michelle uh, Bachelet, 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 who she's the uh, the human rights commissioner of the UN right now. Um, so you saw that in you know Nicaragua with the return of the Sandinistas uh, came back to Nicaragua uh, during that time. Right, that was that was that was uh, um, in the United States. They called that um, the the pink the pink tide because it wasn't. It wasn't fully red, but it was they called it. They 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 dubbed it the pink tide, which is something that that in Latin America it's not it's not a current. You know, people actually don't like that term. But here in in the term in in, that, in the U.S., you know, refer to the pink tide. Uh, and this this was possible because the United States was so embroiled and the and was so bogged down in the war in Iraq uh, that they didn't have they didn't have the resource actually to. To revert that at the time, to revert that at the time, right? So that's what you had. You started spreading. Um, you started uh, um, Chavez policy was south to south, south to south relations, right? Uh, but the point uh, before that, Colombia's number one trading partner was who? The United States. Venezuela's number one trading partner was who? The United States. Peru's number one trading partner was who? The United States. You know, and so and so and so and so, right? So these countries they shared borders with each other, but they weren't the number one trading partners with each other, right? They were all, you know, trading partners the United States camera. Uh so one of his policies was south to south. So, you know, it's ridiculous that we share a border, but we're not the number one trading partner to each other, you know. So we need to we need to look inward instead of outward, right? That's one of his policies. Uh, one of his uh and it was it was functioning. There were, you know, there was a lot of self there was a lot of uh, mutual aid. With with this country going on, so this is kind of reverted outside. So we've seen that we've seen that also, uh, you know, was going into into Africa because uh, that's one of that's one of the the projects that inspired the the Libyan government as well. Uh, you know, an African 
at an African union, uh, African uh, mutual aid, uh, look inward instead of outwards, et cetera. That's one of the policies of Muammar Gaddafi that he was pushing in, in, in South America and in, in Africa, right? Which is also inspired by, by South America, right? You've seen that uh, in, in, in Eastern Europe, or Eurasia. Uh, Eastern Europe was, was from Europe. Eastern Europe was Eurasia, you know, were kind of, uh, uh, you know, the most, you know, more impoverished, particularly after the collapse of the Soviet Union. But now you've seen uh, these countries also creating unions and blocks and, and economic blocks with each other, et cetera. Uh, they have the, uh, Eastern Europe have what they call the Eurasian Economic uh, Organization, uh, which is something that the, uh, the Iran just recently applied and Iran was just admitted to, you know, so United, so Iran right now, um, is, it's part of this, this economic block in Eurasia. Uh, also you see in the Shanghai cooperation organization, which is a Chinese initiative, uh, which is also having economic cooperations and economic, uh, you know, uh, with, with this Eurasian countries plus Iran. Um, so you know, now you're seeing, you're seeing what you said earlier, you're seeing this, this, this shift going on, um, and, and it's truly, it's truly a form of globalization, but at the same time, not the globalization that was peddled by the Clinton administration, which is globalization, but lose your sovereignty, right? Use your sovereignty and pump your, your, you know, transfer your, 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 uh, your, uh, uh, uh commodities. Uh, to the center, to the core, which the core was, you know, United core is United States, Canada, and Western Europe. That's what globalization meant uh, for the Clinton administration. That's what it was pushing after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Globalization and integrate all economies into a global form. But this, but what is what was happening is 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 these these countries in the periphery was actually getting poor and they were transferring their wealth and they were and they were transferring the commodities to the center to the core but what you're seeing right now is that they're breaking and they're and they're having economic relations with each other that's just interesting. so you see a truly uh 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 globalization in that in that aspect right and most of these countries were former colonial colonized countries like in africa for example most of these most of these countries in africa young countries you know they've been politically independent since the 1960s or so right same same with asia um, India and, and Pakistan, you know, where they were British colony until 1948, you know, so they're, they're relatively new countries, right? Uh, young countries. And now they're, they're interconnecting with each other and this interconnecting with each other, right? They're, they're, uh, uh bypassing the West, you know, the Atlantic order, what they call the Atlantic order, which is North America and, uh, and which is, uh, what, what Obama called it, the rules-based order. <laughs> So they're bypassing that and having economic relations with each other with this. And it ties in with the, with the Ukraine uh, conflict, because when, when, uh, Biden wanted to use what it called the nuclear, where to go nuclear on sanctions on, on, on Russia to destroy its economy, starve its people, you know, it's a submission and just defeat the Russians that way. Right. Only 11% of the world population actually went along. 88% of the world population, 80% of the world population did not. 80, 80, over 80% 80, 80 of the world population continues to do business with, with Russia, right? Russia is not isolated, right? Particularly, you mentioned earlier uh, Saudi Arabia refused to increase the, uh, their, their output in, 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 in gas and oil. Uh, India, which, is, which was an uh, economic partner, or is an economic partner of the United States, they refused to sanction uh, uh, Russia, right? Uh, so you see in this, right? So 
going back to South America, to Latin America, you see in a reaction, you see in a reaction because what we're talking about is that under Bush, you know, this economic, this reality, this political economic reality was happening in South America. You know, this assertiveness of South America, this independence, this, this, uh, unification is what it called Patria Grande, right? What's happening and the leadership of, 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 of like I've mentioned earlier, Chavez, uh, Fidel, the Krishners, uh, Rea, all these people, right? Morales, you know, so when Obama came into power, we saw a reaction, we saw the force of reaction, right? The force of reaction, which and the, under the Obama administration by pulling out of Iraq, uh, concentrating its forces pivoting to, to, to Asia, but not only concentrating pivoting to Asia, also Obama, you know, started the process of colonizing Africa, you know, sent, so Obama sent 5,000 troops to Africa. Currently, I think there's like 20,000, there's like 20, 20 permanent uh, American bases in the African continent, right? Uh, currently, not only that, also rolling back this left wing bent of, of Latin America and putting back uh, conservative governments in power. You saw you saw that in Ecuador, you saw that in, 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 uh, in Brazil with the Bolsonaro, Bolsonaros, um, which Bolsonaro came under Trump. But the Honduran coup. Honduran coup, uh, coup in, uh, uh, you know, the, you know, in Haiti, the coup in Haiti started under Bush, but, but after the coup in Haiti, right, uh, Haiti was, you know, came under, uh, under UN militarization. They have, they're under UN occupation to, and they're currently uh, occupying the UN mandate to this day. And you, we saw also this uprising in, 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 in Haiti, which was also was a blackout in the United States media this year after they, their, uh, the president, utterly corrupt president last, you know, last year was, was assassinated by a competing family. It's about some CD family and the, and, and the president today was linked, is said to be tied into the assassination of, of, of last year's, you know, uh, Joel, what's his name? Uh, Moel, Moel, Moise, Moise, um, President Moise. Moise. Yeah. Yeah. So the president today is tied, it's said to be tied with the, with the murder of last year's president. But you saw an uprising going on. He, he was calling for an intervention, U.S. intervention. You saw people on the street saying no, no, no intervention, no U intervention and, and all foreign soldiers to leave the country. You know, that's what they were saying. Uh, people in Haiti, you saw black out here in the United States. Uh, we saw the coup also, and and you saw two coups this year as well, uh, this uh, December and in South America. Also, part of the reaction is what was happening now. What's happening now under Obama? Venezuela was sanctioned. Uh, uh, Cuba, Cuba was they had the thaw in Cuba. Venezuela was sanctioned. Uh, Trump came in. Severely sanctioned Venezuela, severely uh, rolled back the coup, rolled back the, the thine of Cuba with the United States rolling back and start sanctioning Cuba, uh, sanctioning Nicaragua. Uh, but now you're seeing a, a, a resurgence of that left with Lula coming back to power. He, he was actually, he was inaugurated today, uh, came back to power. And the reaction to that, you're seeing coups at the same time going in, 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 in the Peru. Um, December, the, the, the Peruvian president, um, which, uh, was ousted by a, um, by a right-wing coalition, you know, by Fujimoristas and whatnot. And he's actually currently in jail right now. Um, uh, and it's, and we know now that the embassy in, in, uh, the American embassy in, in Peru gave the green light on actually ambassador 
in, in Peru, the American ambassador in Peru was a former CIA agent. And, and right before the coup happened in, in Ecuador, the, the coup plotters met, met in the U.S. Embassy, met with the, uh, uh, with the, with the U.S. Embassy before they went ahead and, and ousted uh, President Castillo. Um, so, so we see that. Uh, we've seen also the, the coup in, in, um, in, in Argentina also as a reaction. And this was mostly, um, this was interesting because it was a coup not against the president, but a coup against the vice president. It was mostly meant keep uh, Christina Christian out of power. Um, she being the most uh, popular politician in, in Argentina. Uh, so we saw that pretty much the same way with Castillo. Uh, but right now the hope is Lula. Right now the hope is Lula for a lot of people at Global South. Uh, Lula, you know, has called out, you know, for negotiation in the, in the, in the war in Ukraine. Uh, Lula is calling out, uh, you know, uh, for the 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 uh, uh, common currency inside, common currency in, in in South America, so that South American countries will be less dependent on the dollars. Um, so we're seeing right now this shift in global power, which many are calling multipolarity, uh, you know, happening right before our eyes. Um, so this can go both ways. This can go either uh, terribly uh, violence, you know, by reaction, or this could be a beautiful thing, you know, with, you know, Global South finally, uh, you know, you know, getting rid of the shackle of colonialism of, you know, 19th, 20th century colonialism. Yeah, I mean, the, the, there's so much there um, they were just talking about. But, you know, I the coup in Peru um, and then the, the coup keeping uh, Christina Kirchner from, from power, you know, those are definite setbacks. Um, but one thing that uh kind of differentiates this kind of uh left i'll just call it a left resurgence i mean some of them are more center left some of them are more uh you know left wing um from, from kind of the earlier earlier phase in the first decade of the this uh century uh is that that there kind of as we've been discussing right there are there are genuine real um if nothing else, economic alternatives, right? The, like we're talking about, we're talking about a multipolar world developing, um, you know, and so there will be ebbs and flows. There will be ebbs and flows in Latin America as well as everywhere else. So, you know, there's, there's ebbs and flows in the movements here in the U.S. and so on. But in the balance, um, I think, I think, the development since the uh, Bolivian coup um, in 2019 have been um, overwhelmingly uh, positive and inspiring, and um, really, re really setting setting forth the potential for for um, I don't know, like real genuine optimism in Latin America. Um, you know, I don't, I don't. I don't know Peru enough to say whether it has the the organization of the social movements like Bolivia had to get to get back over top of of the coup 
executed in 2019 and basically win back their democracy um, in 2020. I don't know that Peru has that. Um, you know, I, I, I don't want to really even speculate because I just don't, don't know that enough to say one way or the other. But one thing we have seen for sure is that they're fighting like hell, right? Yeah. Um, the movements are fighting. Whether, whether they can win, whether, you know, whether it's uh, lost, I don't know. But, but they're fighting like hell. They've already, you know, they already won an election, which seemed kind of like, if you would have told me five years ago, that Peru was going to have um, a, a truly left-wing president, I, you know, I'd have been rather surprised. And, and quite frankly, just this year, we were all surprised. Like nobody, you know, nobody who isn't the, the closest um, observer of Peru even knew who Pedro Castillo was, um, say, two years ago, right? Exactly. Um, you know, he was a labor leader. He led, led um, rural teachers on a strike. That's who, who this guy was, right? So... Um, don't get caught up in the Western media's BS, basically saying he's some sort of dictator or whatever. Like, it's truly absurd. Some sort of idea where, um, this, you know, rural teacher, labor leader, um, could be a dictator. To be a dictator, you have to control, have control over the military, over the police, and whatever. So just don't 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 buy into into that hype um stand in solidarity with castile and stand in solidarity with the peruvian people and stand in solidarity with latin america who is not supporting like they're not recognizing this new coup government right and, I, yeah. and so that's something you know we didn't see but from maybe a handful of governments um with white o's attempted coup in 2019 uh, early 2019, um, you didn't see near as many governments standing in solidarity with um, the Bolivian people and, and the movement uh, towards socialism, which was uh, Morales' party, um, and the coup in, in later, like the fall of 2019. You didn't see this, you know, block standing up and saying, like, we don't recognize your stupid government, like this stupid government. That's a coup government. We all recognize it, right? And so, um, you know, this coup, I think, is a little bit kind of forcing the center left's hand in 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 defending um, the sovereignty of their own states. Because if nothing else, you know, you take uh, someone like Boris or whatever, right, who who is considered to be more center left, he's been better than maybe I even really expected. Because um, a he's got um, strong strong. Um, leaders around him um in in the region and also uh he knows the stakes here you know because um if there's any country that looks a lot like peru um historically it's going to be yeah. colombia and so he knows this is an issue of sovereignty this is an issue of sovereignty and what's happening to pedro castillo can easily come like it, it can easily come back into colombia and that could mean his ruin his incarceration his his death right and so um, the other thing I wanted to touch on just yeah, kind of, you uh, met Petro, not, not Boris, Boris in Chile, you met Petro in Colombia. Yes, I did. Meet him <laughs> twice. I'm sorry. Um, they, they just went in all over the place. <laughs> um, but yeah, Petro. Um, but yeah, Chile, Chile is basically that same, same sort of deal as well. You know, I mean, um, but yeah, I did. I definitely did meet Petro because um, he, he's definitely the one that I've seen kind of like stand up stronger than I maybe expected him to.
Um, Mexico, I also, Mexico, 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 Mexico. So that's where, that's where I was going to go here is, um, we're also seeing, um, AMLO really, uh, pushing back against, uh, us imperialism. And, um, I think that really most came to a head, although it's kind of been happening all year. Um, but with, uh, Biden's organization, um, in Los Angeles, uh, in June of this year for the summit of the Americas in, in like long story short, it was a very failed summit, but, um, but, um, Biden basically Biden alongside with the OAS, I mean, the U S and OAS really shouldn't be taken as having different perspectives or different policies or anything. Um, OAS being the organization of American states that is, um, Anyway, so they're organizing the Summit of Americas in, in Los Angeles, um, but they refuse invites to Nicaragua, Venezuela, and Cuba. Is that correct? Am I missing any yes. others? Yes. No, the whole thing. Yeah. And so um, AMLO basically said, if you're not, well, well, actually, actually, um, I, I don't, I think, uh, I think Nicaragua said that they just weren't going to go. And then like basically Washington was like, well, you're not invited. So, but anyways, that's kind of uh, whatever, who cares? Um, but then. Because uh, uh, they, so, they, start, they started with not inviting Cuba. Yes. I would not invite Cuba and inviting Guaido instead of uh, Nicolas Maduro. Right. And Venezuela. Yeah. And then Ortega says, well, if that's how it's going to be, then I'm not going. And then basically they're like, well, yeah, we weren't inviting you anyways. Um, so, so then AMLO basically says, well, if, uh, if it's not, you know, if the, if, if this is how you're treating, um, the summit of the Americas, this isn't a true summit of the Americas. This is basically a summit of of your friends or who, who you think you have control over basically. Um, and so he says, I'm not going until they're invited. So it became something of a standoff. And then, um, AMLO's, uh, I don't know, I'll just call it a boycott. I don't know what else to call it really, but AMLO's boycott kind of gained steam, um, in other places, especially in the Caribbean. But, um, but it really, basically you started seeing, even even if countries did attend, you know, they weren't sending their heads of state as is customary. They were sending, you know, this or that um, ambassador. Or, several, or several, several uh, Caribbean countries also. Exactly. Uh, the Caribbean was the one that really like kind of yeah. followed through with the boycott more, yeah, than, like, more uh, than elsewhere. But. Yeah, like, 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 like uh, Barbados and, and, and others, they also. They also St. Vincent, I think. Yeah. I don't, I don't remember. Yeah, exactly. they also say that they're not going either. Um, and so, like we're seeing, just hold on one, one second. So at that same time, there's a, uh, and every time that way, summit of the Americas is held, there's a, a counter summit called, uh, at least this time it was called the people's summit for democracy. Um, and like really objectively speaking, not even, not even just, um, saying it was better or whatever, but it was more successful than the summit of the Americas itself. It was better attended. Um, it joined, joined, um, several different movements of labor, anti-imperialism, immigrant rights, housing rights, uh, Black Lives Matter organizations. Just, I mean, the, the list of supporting orgs is incredible. Um, 
and and so that you know really the the people's summit for democracy became the true people's summit of the americas if if yes. you will you know um and so you know there really was was a moment of of egg on the face of of you know not just biden but in but the us as as the global imperialist hegemon um and then you know where we're where we're at now you know um what you know can't can't really like say exactly where the americas will go over time or whatever but um certainly i think um latin america is positioned in a way right now to um exercise and express and and follow their own self-determination and sovereignty not only that in ways we haven't seen in a long time what's that that inspire others inspire inspire pretty much the global south precisely Uh, precisely right we're seeing like they say we're seeing in africa for example the continent of africa mali a long time you know former yes former uh french uh colony uh and a long time um since 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 you know uh u.s puppet as well there's independence they've been pretty much a a french um uh, what do you call that uh just you know just a like french, neo-colony yeah, yeah a neo-colony a fresh neo-colony uh last this year of 2022 you know they sent the french home let's say you took they sent, they, you know, the French, you know, Macron went there, you know, tried to warn him about the Chinese forgot about that. and the Russians and they just sent them home. They said, you know, you got to go home, you know, go home. And they, they sent the French packing and they, they started a new relationship with Russia and a shiny relationship with, with China. Um, Zelensky, you know, he's moving around, trying to get money, got to try and get support. He tried to, he tried to organize last year also in like a, like an African summit, for example, you know, uh, no one showed. <laughs> no, no one showed up. You know, no one showed up. Yeah. Um, no one showed up. I think with a handful of, of you know, the faithful, useful faithful, like three countries or whatever. But for the most part, um, Africa is not playing that role. You know, we're not going to vote. You know, your way. You know, you haven't. You know, you've been abused, using us and abusing us. You know, for the last six years, and we're and you know we're you know we're not playing that no more. Um, you've seen the BRICS. You know the BRICS, exactly. I was um, going to mention the BRICS economic economic. Uh, uh, Block, you know, which BRICS stands for Brazil, or Russia, India, China, and South Africa. You know, uh, this was also developed around, you know, the Bush era. You know, they, you know, they have countries, you know, lining up for to apply for membership now. You know, yep. Saudi Arabia is applying for membership, Iran is applying for membership, and several other countries are applying for membership. I think Argentina, Argentina is also yes. applying for membership as well. Um, you know, so you having you having these you having you having a true globalization now, where 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 you know South America is 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 aligning with Africa and aligning with 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 Asia, Eurasia. You see, you seeing all this connectivity, and then the answer, the answer of of the the global core, the the the, the Atlantic powers is is deglobalization. <laughs> you know, they were the one pushing for globalization. Now they're pushing for deglobalization, you know, um, yeah. you know, sanction Iran, sanction Venezuela, sanction Cuba, sanction Russia, sanction North Korea, sanction you know, China, sanction China, sanction everyone. You know, we're just going to yeah. sanction everyone, right? Uh, and then since the seventies, since the actual since the the, the, end of, the end of the first second world war, the, the dollar became the fiat currency of the world. Um, that's what the, uh, what that means is that the, uh, the countries, uh, 
when they did business with each other, they used the dollar. The dollar was considered the most stable currency. So that's where all countries were using the dollar to make inter international commerce, right? Uh, I believe, I think uh, Latin America used like up to 90%. I think as a matter of fact, several countries in Latin America, like El Salvador and Ecuador, pretty much stopped their, you know, ended their currency. And now they adopted the dollar. The dollar is their currency. Just you know, uh, so like 90% of, of, of business being done in Latin America was done in dollars, uh, you know, and, and with the, with the conflict in, in Ukraine, and this, this has been a mechanism of the United States that used to exert power, you know, and they use this system called the Swiss system, which is, that's what they do international transitions and stuff like that. Um, since the 1971, uh, the dollar was pegged to the, the, the dollar was pretty much, uh, not represented by gold and it just represented, it just became the currency of faith, <laughs> you know, you know, dollar had values because, you know, people have faith in the dollar, you know, that's the only thing that was holding up the dollar faith. Um, and then it became uh, pegged to the, to the, to oil back in 73, et cetera. Right. But now you're seeing countries, you know, because of the abuse, because of the abuse, dollar, because of outright theft over theft. and over I mean, and over. Venezuela lost about three, was it $3 billion that were just withheld from them? Because what happened is those countries, they, they buy dollars and they keep currency, their currencies and, 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 and withdrawn banks, stuff like that, assets there, reserve assets and keeping Western banks because they were told as it were, but they were more secured. You know, and it's easier for them to do transaction with Western countries, you know, while, while, by having their assets there as well. With Venezuela, you know, they started confiscating the, these assets. And, and that didn't start, so it actually started with uh, Iraq, I believe, you know, confiscating Iraqi assets, you know, Venezuela assets, you know. Uh, Afghanistan, Russia. Yeah, I mean, not probably Russia, more that I mean, they confiscated about $500 billion in, 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 exactly. in Russian assets, you know, yeah. and just theft, you know, and then. And because of this behavior, because of this, you know, the dollar being used as a weapon, right, it's pushing a lot of countries to, to rethink the dollar. You know, maybe we need to start doing, you know, using other currencies. Like you said, Russia and, uh, you know, Russia and China, and now they started doing business with their own currency. Iran, yeah. uh, and Iran and, and India. India's using the, 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 the ruble business with Russia, not the ruble, the, uh, what it called, the, the ruble is Russian, I forgot their, uh, their currency, the Indian currency, uh, but they're trading with, with, with their own currencies. Um, like I said, Lula is proposing a common currency in South America, you know, where South American countries, and that's not something that Lula came up with, that's you know, another Chavez came up with, with that project as well. Uh, you know, so yeah, you're seeing that, you're seeing this, you know, uh, you're seeing the, the bypassing of uh, the de-dollarization of international commerce. You're seeing this multipolarity now. You're seeing the de-globalization because now a lot of these countries are, are, are asserting their, their independence and their sovereignty. One of the things, one of the formulas that, 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 that the Clinton era pushed for uh, in globalization is that the, the reduction of state sovereignty. So the sovereignty, so the states to not intervene in, in, in global commerce, you know, that's one of the things that, that was happening with globalization is that the state was enabled to intervene with global commerce and then capital was, and we're not able to intervene with the flow of capital. So capital can go in and out country. The couple, capital had no borders. Exactly. Yep. Had no borders, right? And if the state, uh, if the state were to intervene in this, in this transaction, right, then the state will be sanctioned, the state will be. 
uh, discipline, you know? So that's one of the things. So, so the loss of sovereignty, the loss of sovereignty, right. To global capitalism. And now we're seeing, uh, uh, a reduction of that, of going back to sovereignty, going back to this country, have countries having sovereignty, uh, which is, you know, for depend how this goes th this year and the next couple of years, um, it came to be very truly liber liberator liberatory for a lot of, for a lot of people in the global South, you know? uh, living standards raising, et cetera. Or this could be, depending how the forces of reaction behave, uh, this could be more conflicts coming around the road and, you know, and, yeah. What, you know. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, it's, uh, it's, a global empire being challenged, right. And throughout history, that's, uh, that's a dangerous proposition. Um, because empires, empires don't just merely, uh, give up their power without, without basically lashing, lashing back out. Right. I mean, you know, I, I, I assume we got to kind of close out here pretty soon, but I mean, I do think that's something that, uh, folks should, should keep in mind is like, we have a role here in the U S to, um, weaken the ability of the U S to lash out because that's precisely what it's doing. And that's precisely what it's preparing for. Um, right now it's to a certain degree, keeping it's lashing out in the proxy wars that we've, we've discussed throughout the evening. Um, but as you mentioned and, and Henry mentioned and, and myself, like, I mean, um, the, the, the potential for escalation into extremely dangerous and, um, you know, even into the, uh, the nuclear war territory. I mean, this is, I would, it's not something that I would put past, um, you know, those, those who make decisions in our society, if they feel threatened enough to, to take such drastic steps. Um, and so it really is, it really is, uh, on us here to, to really push back against, you know, kind of another theme of the evening right has been sort of the the who who makes who makes decisions is it just a very 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 few at the top or is it the many at the bottom right like as you said the 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 the, the global south is not following the u.s into um uh this proxy war in ukraine they're not following nato's leadership here they're not following um the 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 leadership of the U.S. and their quote-unquote rules-based order, right? This is not the interest nor the opinion nor the political uh, ideology of the vast majority of the people of the world. And frankly, it really isn't in the U.S. either if people um, really, really understand what, what the stakes are and what, what like, it really means in their day-to-day -day lives. So whether it be on the highest, uh, like, uh, global issues, or more local issues, you know, like we were talking about student loan debt or the right to choose to have an abortion, whether you're ready in, in a place in life where you can bring a child to term, um, you know, it goes from the very most personal to the very uh, highest level mechanisms um, in the world, right? But fact of the matter is that the people are moving past this system. They're moving past the, the US-led capitalist imperialist world order. Um, and so how do, you know, what do we, what do we do to, to push back against this system or, you know, ourselves here being in the belly of the beast? Yeah. Yeah. Jake, let's, uh, let's close this, uh, on a very inspiring note. Uh, you're a soccer guy to tell, tell us about the, um, uh, World Cup. 
Well, um, Argentina won, which is uh, exciting. They defeated, uh, God, what was it? France. It was defeated France. France was the ones I had pegged to actually win it again. But fortunately, uh, Messi finally got his uh, World Cup trophy, um, cementing him at, at a minimum of, as the best player since uh, his predecessor, Diego Maradona. Um, so, no, very cool. Um, I don't know. Just uh, maybe, maybe they weren't uh, the team I most wanted to see win it. I don't know, but but um, but certainly of the 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 soccer powers, the football powers, like they're they're the one that I probably wanted to see win. Three things three things come to mind with the World Cup, right? So a global South country won the won the cup. Another global South country capturing one's heart and imagination. And another global yeah. south country that wasn't even participating, right? In the Global Cup. Right. Know, representation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. About that. <laughs> yeah, so exactly. So I mean, um so yeah, Morocco, uh Auto shocked basically the world by by reaching the semifinals. Semifinals, right? I think it was yeah. semifinals. Um you know they've got good players and all that, but I mean, frankly, I don't. I don't think anyone really saw uh, Morocco's success coming um, this World Cup. So yeah, Global South country uh, really. I don't know. Watching watching that team, they were good, like really, really good. This this was no flash in the pan. Pan. This was no fluke. Uh, Morocco was extremely good this entire World Cup. Um. So all all respect to them, and then of course. Um, the ladder that you're uh, responding to that's not in the cup but captured everybody's heart uh, was Palestine. Um, you can find find a few different kind of articles or whatever basically talking about how uh, Palestine was the true winner of the, the World Cup, you know. Um, basically, since the, the, the cup was held in, a, in, a, in an Arab country and so on, I think it gave, gave a lot of space um for 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 discussion about palestine in ways that that at least i've never seen in in world cup um coverage before but we saw um man we saw israeli uh journalists you know that were unable to really even cover cover the cover the 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 sporting event without um people from across the world from england from uh Morocco and whatever, you know, Morocco would have the 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 Palestine Palestine flag in their team photos. It's like huge flags out in the stands. Um and then yeah, like uh I, I remember seeing some clip of these English dudes. Um the, the African really... teams also with Palestine flags as well, did they? What's that? African teams came out also with the fight with the what's the uh, Palestine flag came out as well. Yeah, you could be you could be right. I mean, I'm sure I'm sure you're you're right. I mean, basically the flags were just out in the stands, teams were were holding the flags, and then yeah. Uh the the one clip that I just really liked the, the most was um this Israeli reporter talking to a bunch of uh English English supporters and the the Israeli reporter basically asked um so so is england gonna bring it home because that's like their mantra right like bring it home and they're like yeah but more importantly free palestine you know and it's just like so i mean that's just that's just what the the tenor of the world cup was um regarding palestine um and they're really you know it was it, it was it was hard to not not see it just be, you know because uh it, it really was ubiquitous throughout the world cup 
that note, right on that note, um, let's close the, uh, show, um, new year's 2023, um, a lot of work to be done out there. You know, people who are active, people on the street, people are, um, you know, uh, who are organizing, there's a lot to do. Um, a lot of things happen in 2022, a lot of things going to happen in 2023. Um, you know, we need to stay focused, engage, you know, and, you know, renew our energies. Well, cool. I really appreciate y'all having me on. Been been following the program for a long while and uh, really, really honored that, that you invited me on as a guest. Yes, of course. Thank you for joining us and I hope to see you back. Most definitely. Money is tight these days for everyone. Penny pinching to make it through the month often doesn't give people the funds to contribute to a creator they support. So we consider it the highest honor that folks help us fund the podcast in any dollar amount they're able. Patreons is the main place to do that. And for supporters who can donate $10 a month or more, they will be listed right here as an honorary producer, like these fine folks, Fahim Shirazi, James O'Barr, James Higgins, Eric Phillips, Paul Appel, Julie Dupree, Thomas Benson, Janet Hansen, Daniel Fleming, Michael Karen, Ren Jacob, Howard Reynolds, Rick Coffey, Scott Spaulding, Spooky Tooth, and the Status Quo Podcast. However, if Patreon isn't your style, you can contribute directly through PayPal at paypal.me forward slash Fortress on a Hill. Or please check out our store on Spreadshirt for some great Fortress merch. We're on Twitter and Facebook.com at Fortress on a Hill. You can find our full collection of episodes at www.fortressonahill.com. Skepticism is one's best armor. Never forget it. We'll see you next time. I will know.